0: Welcome back to the Isle of Faces. Welcome to Scraps and Scrolls, A Dance of Dragons, Part 11. Hello, I am Sir Buckley. I am your resident green person here on the Isle to take you through another four chapters today. I'm sure you're already watching and listening to Valor read over on History of as well. Hello, thanks for coming back. Have you recovered from Part 10 yet? I'm not sure I have, to be honest with you. That was a long, old episode. A pretty heavy episode. And, well, yeah, speaking of length our longest ever episode we've done that twice in a row part nine three hours seven minutes i think that was our longest ever episode then last week three hours 18 minutes are we going for the triple crown god i hope not (laughs) there's a lot of work to get those podcasts out and uh no i don't think we'll be going over three hours of these four chapters but who am i to say maybe we will find out today i am speaking to you from a it's a sunny England, everybody. A sunny isle. I'm very happy to report. This morning, on the dog walk, blue sky everywhere, some lovely clouds, nice white sunny clouds. I've missed them sorely. The other day there was bird song. I need it in the depths of winter. You know what I'm like. I need the solar energy. And I know to you, because I have to listen back to these podcasts, I always sound like I'm bored. I know my voice sounds like that. Even when I'm Recording these, and in my head, I sound very, very uh, passionate and all these things. I know to you guys, I sound pretty much just monotone the whole way through, but the solar energy is needed, especially right now, because I'm recording this intro not long after having finished that big, long, three hour, 18 minute part 10 episode. And I'll be honest with you, the last couple of days, well, I'm running on about four hours sleep out of the last 48. So if I sound extra tired today, or a little more monotone than usual, I apologize it's not a reflection on the material or my enthusiasm for talking to you i'm just very very tired hopefully i won't start hallucinating halfway through because that's been happening a little bit as well no 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 but it's all worth it isn't it to get these episodes out for you let me thank you first of all for making it worth staying up late and getting up early to do these with your sharing and your retweeting and you just talking to me about a song of ice and fire that was all so very very fun and of course extra thank yous go to the wonderful patrons your support really keeps me on it, keeps me working. Again, makes it worthwhile, you're all such wonderful people. And as always, I have to thank, especially, Lord Commander, Namian Darklyn, the Sixth, KM, and the wonderful Archmaster June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes. So thank you to all our patrons, thank you to all our listeners. This community is, well, it's just awesome, isn't it? So with all that out of the way, let's start talking about what we're actually going to be talking about today because we do have another four chapters and okay, they might not be as big and huge as at least two of the four were last week, but they're still pretty important. So what are we going to be looking at today? Well, first off, we start with a bang because we've got a brand new POV for you for this book anyway. It's a return dawn, we're going back to Hotar, the man we've only seen once before as a POV. So that's very, very exciting. That's our one squint into the sun in this whole book. So we've got a lot to talk about there. It's going to be a lot of set for wins. We will then go to John 8. He takes second spot yet again. That's a much shorter chapter where John is going to enlist Val for a secret mission. There's so many people on secret missions in this book. We then head back to Tyrion. We actually missed him out last week. That's quite the rarity. So Tyrion 9. We're back aboard the Salesi Koran and well things are gonna get rough out there on the waves. And then we will finish with, again like last week, a Fion chapter. This time it's Fion V, The Turn Cloak, and Winter has truly come to winterfell now we thought we saw it last week oh no no the storm that's hitting stannis is hitting these guys too and they are suffering for it so we're back in that whole confusing mess of factions and secrets and plots and a lot of them will come out today footprints in the snow is what we'll find so still plenty to talk about as you can see i think it's best that we get on especially because we want to get down to dawn i I need that sunshine i need the solar energy let's begin then with our first chapter of the day is aero hotar slash the Watcher. So we start with a pretty big switch from last time out. We're travelling from the freezing north in those most terrible circumstances that I'm sure I don't need to remind you about, all the way back down Westeros to Sunny Sunspear for actually just the third time ever. Check that fourth time ever. Aerial does get there eventually in his first chapter, doesn't he? So we've had an Aerial. We've had an Aries and we've had one Arianne, the other was out on the sands of Dawn. So, this is our fourth ever time in Sunspear. We get a return to this storyline and this POV, and both of them feel Out of the blue, really, considering what we've had so far in this book. We've been in the North, we've been in Essos, we've been above the Wall a bit, and that's really all so far. We haven't been looking this way geographically or thematically, really. Even with the two Quentin chapters we've had so far, it's been a long, long time since we've had to think of any of these specific events or plot threads or characters. Dawn itself has been mentioned plenty, whether that be by Quentin or via different people thinking about Danny's future, but there's been no actual given thought to the storylines occurring in Sunspear, because they're all still pretty secure in that area and those storylines haven't leaked out yet. No one we've been dealing with knows about them, not even Quentin we all know that from reading feast obviously but these characters don't so this is all again just out of left field but speaking of a feast of crows that is now what we're merging with as with a few weeks ago when we introduced john Connington and asher we've now reached yet another new era of dance this is another marker in the sand the timeline of a feast for crows has finally begun to catch up in a more secure way we've seen a little bit of trickle here and there but now this is really more obvious and we're going to be opening up more and more storylines from that book as we see starting here today. So, pretty important. Well done, Ariel, for being so noteworthy. And it's true, yes, we have already remet a feast character, Feast POV, in Asher, but her storyline had left the vicinity of Feast and fully entered the Northern Dance. Whereas today, we will revisit the Dawn plot that was specifically introduced by, again, Ares, Ariane, and Hotar, our day. And slowly but surely, the other feast slash dance crossovers will follow suit. First it will be Arya and Bravos that's coming up soon, then Jamie's lone appearance in 10 chapters time, before Cersei finally gets involved as well. And in fairness, yes, Victarion falls into the same category of being a feast and a dance POV, but like Asher, I would say his storyline has merged over into dance, so I don't really count him. So we'll have four feast storylines, not counting the epilogue, which is kind of a bit of both, and each of them are near as brief as the other to be honest. It's one chapter for Aereo, one chapter for Jamie, and then two each. For cersei and ire but even though they're short they are still important and they're full of key moments and besides some of them will remain key favorites i mean come on we get a brienne appearance later on everybody how can you turn that down and for many people Dawn will top that excitement list. We certainly had a blast going through it back when we were covering A Feast of Crows, I really liked that storyline if you remember me going on about it, especially once Ariane took over. So I'm very very glad that we get to revisit it even if it is just for one short chapter. To me it seems like it's been the longest time since we had this storyline and these people pop up and part of that is because it's physically true cersei and jamie made up two of the final three feast chapters so we've actually seen them on page more recently but it's also just because we're way more familiar with those other storylines of jamie cersei and aya and they got a lot more coverage in general than dawn did to be specific it is 44 chapters since arianne's final pov that's how many we've read in the time since that was the wonderful princess in the tower chapter and I feel like we might have forgotten just how amazing that actually ended. The high drama that we had there at the close. And we'll revisit that a little bit once we actually get into the text of this chapter. But just recall Ariane's failed plan for Marcella, Her obsession over Quentin and what she thought was a plot against her. And then the eventual discovery that her father, Duran Martel, was anything but a placid man indeed recall the fire blood vengeance moment that was huge that was a massive moment i personally see it as the feast equivalent to why the the north remembers moment there's a lot of similarities there and they both definitely got our blood pumping so this is really really good to be revisiting this especially you know after the heavy chapter we had last week i didn't want to talk about it in the intro but it was very very heavy not a lot of fun to read not a lot of fun to talk about i probably swore too much i was a little bit too loud my apologies to you but not really because it was warranted so after that extreme dip it's really quite handy for george to give us this nice sunny chapter of all these interesting plot threads to get our juices going again well for out george well thought out, Aziz, for putting the uh, episode chunks together this way. So anyway, back to that chapter, The Prince in the Tower, that was obviously a huge cliffhanger, and we've been left without it for 44 chapters. Quentin, who's supposed to be picking up our Dornish fix, has given us nothing. He's got his own entirely separate storyline. So now we're very, very excited to reopen the Dawn book and find out what the result of that father-daughter meeting was, whether Ariane accepted Duran's word, what they've been able to achieve as a team if she did, and what the further plans for vengeance are. Perhaps we can even dream of further linking into the Daenerys storyline, seeing as we've been doing that a bunch in this book already. Who knows? So the expectation to continue with that cliffhanger and finally get that release might make it seem odd to some readers that we're coming back here to Sunspear through the eyes of none other than Eryo Hotar, the Watcher, instead of our princess. Ariane is obviously going to be the much larger character going forward. She's about 50 times more intriguing than Eryo Hotar, for starters, no offence meant. And she's also had double the POV chapters as Sweltering 2. Yeah, So our natural thought would be that she would continue any spear chapters in this book to make it three in a row, which would make even more sense now that we know she has Winds chapters as well, but instead we have The Watcher. And that makes sense in some ways. If this were an Ariane chapter, she would clearly have to give up a lot more of the eventual plan and the fallout from that meeting with Duran, at least earlier in the chapter, than we find out about here. And George probably wants to keep some tension up. Still, it would have been pretty fun to see it through her eyes, I won't deny. Instead, let us turn to Hotar, the man whose POV we have been in exactly once before, a whopping eighty three total chapters ago. He was right at the beginning of feast so it's a book and a half since we've seen him no we aren't quite on brand or theon levels just yet in terms of pov chapter gaps but having said that in terms of the gap between someone's first chapter and their second well john Connington will put in a good effort but even he can't match area hotel he runs away with that title back in feast area had the incredibly important job of introducing us to a whole new part of the plot in dawn Again, he was the second chapter of the book. He was our first window into this entirely new section of A Song of Ice and Fire. Third chapter, I suppose, if you count the prologue. Third chapter of Feast of Crows, so a long, long time ago. And just to remind you, that was way, way back when, when we first traveled up from the water gardens up to Sunspear. We met Duran Martell, obviously a key figure, as well as the three sand snakes, who are also making just their second ever physical appearance today. We also got Arianne and just established this world that we're in, this very, very different place. So an incredibly important chapter. And one might be forgiven for once thinking that that was it for poor hotar as he was replaced by not one but two other characters—in first Erisocar and then Ariane. We never returned to him for those key feast moments, even though he was involved, and yet here he is again, which is exciting as well. We knew nothing of Erisocar when we were first introduced him, but since then we've seen him demonstrate his absolute loyalty. He stopped a coup of sorts, and he killed a member of the king's guard with almost complete ease. So at the very least, we're interested in seeing his thoughts on all that. He might give us updates on Darkstar and where he went. He might even tell us who told the eternal mystery that we've yet to solve. Yes, it all starts to come trickling back now, doesn't it? The many storylines that are still at large in Dawn, because there are a lot. Besides, even if we did have reservations about Hotar being the POV of choice, and we can now look back and also figure he's included here because he's going to be in wins and therefore George didn't want to leave too big a gap, it's already pretty big, I believe we see pretty quickly over the coming pages why George went with this option and the particular feel that we get as a result is very very different. And remember, there is a lot of weight on Hotar's shoulders here, just like his first chapter where he had that responsibility of introduction, he now has all the pressure of the one lone dawn chapter we get in this entire book so somehow he has to prop up the entire tarnish plot as it trails off from feast gets this one supporting role and dance and then he's got to pick it up again in wins. i imagine it as you know a bridge over a chasm and it's just Hotar in the middle propping that train tracker in this single chapter he has to not only move that plot forward or the many plots and then establish the many wins threads that will come out of it but first he also has to remind us of all the moving parts he has to keep our interest and introduce us to new secrets all while increasing the level of tension and interest in this storyline of vengeance and planning that was bubbling away in Feast and for many, many years before. And he has to do that effectively so that when we get to Winds, we are ready to hit the ground running because we already know that these that are going to be really, really important in the Southern storylines later on. Specifically, this chapter will deal with plots kept secret on the international stage. We'll have to reveal the secrets within a family. We're going to look at ties and hoodwinks and famous promises all before getting into that incredibly juicy sub with the individual sand snakes and their bringing into the fold. As well as an important change of direction for our POV as we move House Martell into the next phase of a decades long plan. It's incredibly exciting stuff I think it's really great to be back with this bunch. Again, I really like them. You know I'm a fan but it's also just a nice departure from the main storyline. This is essentially the most isolated chapter in the book, maybe in all the books, and it's still full of great stuff. So let's get to it. We waste no time in setting up how things have changed. Balan Swan is finally here. The Sand Snakes have been let out. Everyone is together. We're an official meeting, a feast, and it's made abundantly clear from the start that we've walked in on a very important, very tense situation. Even if it has been a while, in fact, maybe because of that, George starts the introduction with a hinge moment. This chapter could very easily go one of two different ways and that split in the path is going to be decided right here at the beginning with the viewing of this head and this chest. For the majority of the room, all the focus and attention is centred upon this hinge, which for now, like I say, is represented by the chest, yet all the true interest lies about what's inside the chest. But Hotar reminds us right from the beginning that he is made of different stuff. He's not a part of these lords and ladies, he's not a power wielder or a public face, he has a title and a position, that's true, but he's not an upfront player, he's part of the background. And we must remember that this role being given a POV is still a fairly new thing for George. Typically, through the series, it is the lords and ladies who are POV characters. Run through your list, and whether it's as a great house, or a large house, or a small house, they're all, for the most part, highborn. Now, Some of them will take on roles where they don't wear that particular hat for whatever reason, the Stark children especially. But we're always focusing on someone with a name davos is really the only one who challenges that during clash but even he ascends to a mighty public position eventually like so much else it is feast that breaks the mold when we finally start to look at sideline characters as pv's and it was Arya hotar who did it first followed by eris oakheart and really it's only kept up in dance by brass and selmy now again those last two they are highborn but because they're kingsguard they're not supposed to be the focus of their chapters that's arguable for barry's given what's going on there but you get what i mean although to actually agree with my own argument there aero is still the outlier because barry and aries there are the focus of their own chapters as you'd expect whereas ario really isn't so while we're well acquainted with the background players like a varus or a baelish or whoever else there's hundreds of them aero is pretty much unique among all povs for his chapters just not being about him as his first paragraph reminds us with the conjunction of the chapter title he is there to watch. Watch for safety and watch for plot. That's one of the things that makes his potential wins chapter so interesting because theoretically that role will eventually be broken and we'll get to see Ario doing something rather than witnessing. That's going to be quite the difference should we get there. Let's have our first quote of the day, shall we? Ario Hotar ran his hand along the smooth shaft of his long axe, his ash and iron wife all the while watching. That's the second line of the chapter and we already hit two of Ario's biggest focuses, his love of his long axe, and this idea of watching that we've just mentioned. And we know internally how much crossover there actually is between the two. Ario remains in the shadows. He's there, but he's unnoticed, and he allows us to see the various emotions of the chapter from a different, removed angle. Again, that's pretty unique within the series. Our fellow P.V.s of will often shut up and just listen or watch, you've seen it recently with Theon quite a lot, but they almost always have very personal stakes and reactions to what's going on, Hotar doesn't really. Instead, he stands cool and collected in this room filled with tension as everyone stares at this important chest. There's no vengeance to satisfy in his heart. There's not even any curiosity really, or at least not enough to distract from his beloved duty. Another quote for you, standing half in light and half in shadow. He saw all of them. Serve. Protect. Obey. That was his task. His first priority is safety. So he leaves the hinge to everyone else while he analyzes who is in attendance and who might be a danger. As if we didn't have enough tension already, Hotar believes that many of the people he is watching could be dead, depending on what happens with this grand hinge. So yes, tension, Check that off the list. While the chest is being retrieved by Maester Kaelia, it's actually pretty weird to just witness Duran sitting between Ariane and Alaria Sand as if this was any other morning. Again, it seems like so long ago that we saw these two, the father and daughter I'm focusing on here, but we clearly remember the pure passion we ended the Dawn storyline with in Feast, and we've been wondering about that fallout, about their secret plans, or whether there's still a rift between them, and yet here they are, nor was any other family just sat down at a feast. And like I said, Elyria is here too, and that's a blast from the past. The last time we saw her on page, she was wailing in terror after there was a sickening crunch, which unfortunately was the sound of Oberyn's skull. Her scream was the very next line after that sentence, and that was the last we saw of her. So that really takes us back and also adds to this tense atmosphere as we now have someone who was an active part of, of this latest injustice that Dawn and these assembled Dawnish people are so angry about. we learnt in Feast that Duran was keeping Ilaria and the younger children at the water gardens, and also that her father is Lord Uller. So this may well indicate some larger role for Ilaria to play right here at the beginning even if we will find evidence to the contrary as the chapter goes on. And if we're speaking of Blast from the past, well, what about our other guest? What about Sir Balen Swan? He did appear in Feast, to be fair, but only at the beginning. He was sent on this Dornish mission by Cersei's fourth chapter, and we likely think of him more as a Storm character more than any other book, although he was also involved in the Blackwater. So we might need to dredge our memories just a little bit to remember that generally we're pretty fond of this guy. He was one of the more honourable knights we've met, especially among those on the Kingsguard. He refused to say anything more than the truth about Tyrion in the matter of Joffrey's dead. He chastised Loras when the younger knight challenged Jaime's arrival on King's Landing. And Jaime himself announced that the Kingsguard was honoured to have him during that meeting inside Whitesword Tower. So he's a cool guy overall, one of the rare good ones we like to think, and it's cool to see him again. Which makes it quite a shame that he's representing the bad side, although... Through no fault of his own. He didn't elect Cersei, that's just his job. But he is here on the command of Cersei. He does serve as the antagonist for this chapter, or the representation of an antagonist anyway. So that's a shame because we like him, but how is Arya viewing him? We know that Hotar's job is to analyse the threats, the newcomers. We've already seen him do it before with another member of the King's Guard, and back then Arya was confident he could kill Sir Eris Hokar if it came to it. He proved the truth of those words. So what did you think of Sir Balon? Here's the quote. This one will not die so easy as the other. He will not charge into my axe the way Sir Aris did. He will stand behind his shield and make me come at him. If it came to that, Hotar would be ready. His long axe was sharp enough to shave with. To no one's surprise, Hotar recognises a larger threat this time round. A larger threat, but still one that he is confident he can beat. And we've got no reason to doubt him so far. He's backed up every word. But we've mentioned before that it seems near certain that george will pour all this confidence into ario only to surely have it taken away at some point and there must be a part of the plot in the future where hotai is either surprised that his watching got it wrong or he will recognize someone is better than him but will fight them anyway because of his love of duty it just seems so set up that way given his love of his acts etc and we know the reasons for that but it just seems like it's, that's destined to happen because george is giving so much focus to ario's confidence and his skill. And he's actually specifying how a fight would go here, so it seems like he's going to put that to use at some point. And most assume that that time will come if he faces Darkstar. Perhaps it will even be Urbara. Maybe it will even be Sir Balon who defeats him, although I doubt it. For all we know, it could be someone from either Aegon or Danny's contingents much later on. But that's something we'll probably talk about more at the end if i'm honest while totting up sir balen's skill as a fighter which we've already seen proven out on the battlefield hotar notes that this man is taught as a drawn bow he's on the edge he's either nervous or prepared for a fight or both so the hinge moment is of even more prestige just as the chest is finally opened for something with so much focus something that seemed like it was so potentially volatile the reaction to its opening is actually fairly subdued there's some clearing of throats some whispered prayers but more often than not it's just pure silence so if anything that just means that the tension has not deflated at all. This is not satisfactory. Inside, what they're all looking at is a gigantic skull. One is obviously supposed to be that of Sir Gregor Cagaine. Now, we should take an aside here. Do we agree? Do we think that this is the skull of Gregor Cagaine? Because that's gonna be questioned in the moment. So what's our thoughts? Well, personally, I've got no idea there's a few thoughts hanging around there in the fandom that yes this is Gregor Cagaine's head and the monster we now call Sir Robert Strong that we'll meet later is actually walking around without a head or a new head there's something to do with Kyburn in there whatever mysteries and not necromancy but dark magics he's working down in his dungeons so okay maybe that's possible I don't personally like the idea that Sir Robert Strong is Gregor without a head, but then again, if this one in front of us now isn't Gregor's, I don't know where they got it from. It, well, it could be anything, couldn't it? So I've got no answer for that, but I'm interested to see what your theories are. Whatever the truth is, this is the public tale, and it requires public reaction, which Duran Mattel is a master at. He's got his tears in his eyes right now. He knows how to play his part. So once this monstrous skull is placed atop a pedestal, Duran publicly and officially recognizes it as Gregor again the mountain. At least, that's what it sounds like, although he doesn't actually say it in so many words, because again, he's the master. Theoretically, again, this recognition should deflate the tension in the room, yet that effort fails once again as the Sand Snakes get involved. And technically, these three are blasts in the past as well. It's another factor that is easily forgettable given how much attention we give them, but these three have appeared on page a grand total of once so far in the saga, like I mentioned earlier, back in Area Hotar's first POV at the beginning of Feast, so a long, long time ago, and that's it. They were spoken about and referred to a whole bunch in Aeris and Arianne's three chapters, but we've not actually seen them since. And George is aware of that, so he's pretty sneaky in getting in some quick fire reminders, pretty much one after the other here, on the key characteristics and the looks of these three women and how dangerous each of them can be in their own way. So let's do the same thing, let's give you the rundown. First is Obara Sand. She is the eldest of the Sand Snakes, and she is the daughter of Oberyn Martel, obviously, and an old town sex worker. You might remember she's the one who kind of embraces the warrior model the most. She has her spear and her whip and her shield. She tends to wear clothes more often associated with the men. And she's pretty pissed off about her mother and Old Town's existence in general. So keep that in mind. Next is Nymeria, or Lady Nim. She's the second oldest, and she's pretty much the opposite of Obara. She's the one with the noblest blood. Her mother was highborn from Valantis, and she's got all of the looks. She's supposed to be the most beautiful. She's the one who dresses the most elegantly, apparently. And yet, still, she is very, very dangerous. You'll remember she turned up on her, her massive sand steed. She rides really well. She has all these hidden daggers on her person, and Aereo definitely thinks she's very, very dangerous. And that leaves us with Tyene, the youngest of these three of the Sand Snakes. And she seems completely different from the other two. She's fair-skinned. She's got golden hair and blue eyes. She's looks the part of the innocent, basically. And that's partly because her mother was a septum. So she's kind of got that whole, again, innocent look about her. And yet, her danger is well known as well because she loves the use of poison. So don't let the looks fool you, basically. That's what Hotar told us before. So all three of these, we know the score. Very, very dangerous very very passionate very very ambitious in terms of their revenge their desired revenge especially now after what's happened to their father and the three of them here they turn their questions on sir balon and you get the sense that they aren't quite satisfied by this apparent appearance of greyrock against skull it isn't enough for them it doesn't satisfy them and part of that is george's overall message about the unending nature of revenge and how that hole can never be filled but some of it is also their belief that revenge should involve violence of some sort You can't just give us a skull, we want to go and take something. They don't want to receive their revenge in the post, they want to go out and earn it. They want to feel it upon their blades. Hence, they steadily goad Sir Balon just a little bit here. It's not overly strong right now, but they want to make clear their feelings on Gregor and prove themselves to not be satisfied, even if not overtly right now. Sir Balon himself is in a difficult position. For a start, he may be aware of how much of a lie this is and how it could all go wrong, but maybe not. But even if he believes it to be true, He's likely more than aware of what Greg Walker game was and is no great fan of his but he's representing the crown in an official capacity. He can't be seen to be disparaging his own side whether that be as a loyalist or as a knight. You don't throw your teammates under the bus like that. So he has to show at least some unity whatever his personal opinion. Otherwise he would be lending too much strength to the Dornish position and his own position would therefore be weakened. Aereo said he was taught as a bow and not all of that is due to this skull. Some of it is his further duty and what he must achieve as we'll see as we go. He's still got more invested in this chapter of Sir Balon, when he finally says that poison is a foul and filthy way to kill, he's likely just being completely genuine because we know this is the general opinion of Westeros. But it's obviously a dodgy thing to say in present company. Some might even see it as a coy slight delivered in the dance of politics, but I personally don't suspect that from Balon Swan. Either way, Duran reminds them all of exactly what Gregor was and his great crimes back in Robert's Rebellion, while again declaring Dawn officially accepts this as justice. And as a repayment of debt and therefore satisfactory his words are to be honored with a toast one that hotel remains outside of because of course duty comes first duran also has special measures he has his own personal wine publicly that's because his sore joints require poppy juice to be included and there's probably some truth to that but i also believe it's because duran is a cautious fellow well aware of the dawnish love of poison as we've just covered and he does not want to be taking any chances duran's declaration might have finally released some of that ever-present tension but now it returns as hotel witnesses who drinks to this toast, therefore publicly symbolising support both for what Duran said and accepting this to be Gregor's skull and also as an acceptable form of repayment, as well as those who do not drink, obviously symbolising the complete opposite. For those who do drink, we only need to pay attention to a couple. and Swan is obvious, of course he's going to. Ariane is interesting, because we still have zero idea what her inner thoughts are, her reaction to her father's reel in the last book, or whether she's still nursing her own inner plots. We don't even know if this drink is a lie or if it's true. Is she on the same page as Duran or not? But we also make note of Valeria Sand drinking, which is pretty weighty in the public arena given that she was Oberyn's paramour and would theoretically have more reason than anyone to still want revenge, especially seeing as she was present for the whole thing, so she really does lend some weight to that side. But that's barely half. There's plenty more who choose not to drink, and some of them are known to us, while some are not. We see Sir Damon Sand, Oberyn's squire, and also present for his death, there's the Fowler twins that have been mentioned in Quentin's chapter as well, and there's some familiar families like the Wiles or the Ullers. Arrow has this to think. If there's trouble it could start of any one of them dawn was an angry and divided land so the tension now returns on both a micro level within this very room and on the macro national level is dawn going to remain unified and whole or is it going to split apart will there be a rebellion of sorts like Ariane once dreamed of and how is this going to affect all of duran's well-made plans although we would also do well to remember that this not drinking doesn't necessarily mean anti-duran leanings but that these people want more vengeance more blood and that they're open to the idea of war against the Lannisters, though it certainly doesn't exclude wanting that and being anti doran at the same time. Aerio cannot think of such things right now. His job is to protect the here and now and be aware of all possible starting points for conflict, whether it be directed at Bane the Swan or even at his Prince Duran. His largest worries among the non drinkers are the Free sand snakes. Nymir and Tain, they both just declined to toast. But Obara goes a step further by first knocking her full cup to the floor and then storming out, which obviously sends a pretty clear message. Here and now, Sir Balon can't be seen to take offence. He's away from home turf and clearly outnumbered, but everyone knows the damage this can do to relations under the service, and it's exactly the opposite of what Duran wants to do, as we'll see later. Ariane hurries after Obara, which re-readers know is likely because she needs her for what happens after the feast in this secret meeting. She needs to keep her around. When Ariane returns later on in the feast, Aria reflects on how she has grown into a woman both physically and in maturity also, even since we last saw her. He gives a quick review of her feast storyline and her failed plot, although annoyingly he doesn't give away who told, if he is even privy to such information. But more interestingly, he senses that the relationship between Ariane and her father has changed. There was something else as well though, some secret her father had confided in her before releasing her from her confinement. What that was, the captain did not know. Hotar might not know, but we sure do, so we get the little jolt that we always do when we know more than the POV, but it also just sends us back to that secret meeting and gets us excited for what's coming out of it. Evidently, something already has for Hotar to notice it, and we begin wondering what Martells are actually working together could look like. We get our first evidence pretty much straight away, as Arianne now attempts to work her skills on the new Knight of the Kingsguard, as she once did with the former. It seems pretty obvious to us, having read Arianne's POVs and knowing how she thinks, Technically, we don't yet know if she's doing this of her own volition and has some new plot that she wants to start, or if this is part of a conjoined plan between her and Duran, but given what Hotar has just said, we probably lean towards the latter. Her first attempts fail anyway. That's okay, this is a slow and subtle fight. Balon is more concentrated on the Dornish cuisine, which, as we know from Aeris, Aero, and now Balon as well, can be pretty cruel to out of towners. Or maybe he's just aware of his own mistake with the poison gaff he made earlier. Sir Balon does open up slightly when the skulls of sugar are served, but that's only because he senses a slight in the proceedings. Nice as Sir Balon is, he still has his pride, and he knows that he is representing the crown at large here. We can probably agree this is an intended slight, the type that is just enough to annoy someone, but that you can't really complain about without looking like a jackass, so it results in your opponent just being that little more off base. Perhaps its entire purpose is to give Ariane an opening into conversation, which she takes full advantage of here. First, it's a brush of her fingers against his hand. And then some admiration of his house's sigil, the one that currently adorns his cloak. She even talks of how much she would like a swan. So there's not much room for guessing what her plot is here. We've seen the result before with Eris, and there's every chance we will see again when she finally meets Aegon and wins. Hopefully, that attempt will go much better than this one because Sir Balon is not biting on this particular Dornish offering, and Aeryo notices as such. It does make you wonder if Sir Balon is taking as much notice of Aeryo Hotar as is the reverse. Either way, Hotel compares Sir Balon and Sir Eris, how the latter was younger and full of weaknesses, which we know full well to be true, but the former is older, he's battle tested, he's more realistic about politics and the truth of court. Eris had his head in the clouds and was full of self denial, not so with the newbie. Hotar captures more of the details that might be lost to other guests not so sharp at watching. Sir Balon knows what's up. Yes, it can be unsettling just being present in Dawn in the first place, the food, the weather, accents customs and pretty much everything else is completely different to the rest of the seven kingdoms even if you were considered well-traveled in westeros almost every place is pretty much the same across the board there's very minimal differences between old town and Gold Town, or storm's end and sea Guard. but dawn is entirely different and this society is not used to different so that alone can really put someone off kilter especially when you add it onto him having to play the slow plodding political game all the way down through dawn as duran detailed for us back in feast He had to keep that smile in place while just trying to get away so he could do his job. That's frustrating enough. But then going all that way to find yet another barrier and more fake smiles, that's even worse. But the rest of it is the weight of the mission and knowing that something is up. He's a smart guy and he knows there is a key element missing here, the key element that you could say, and definitely one of our favorites, Marcella. She is the reason for his presence in the first place. This grand hinge of the skull is nothing more than a cover. So where is she? And where is Eris Okart for that matter? clearly it's on his mind and is responsible for some of the general tension in the room, especially among those who know Eris to be dead and Marcella disfigured. Hotar figures there might even be more to the equation. Maybe the Sand Snakes, maybe Obara storming out and now returning, or maybe the fact that he still has some dodgy ground to tread in Cersei's plans, although those are obviously unknown to Hotar. Cersei is the subject now as Duran brings up the letter that Balon delivered from the woman they still believe to be queen. They've obviously got no idea what's currently going on up there. And Hotar notes that Sir Balon tenses because for him, this is the second hinge of the chapter this is another key moment that points down two very different roads depending on how the people react to it the long and short of it is balon has been sent to come and retrieve Marcella. however you dress it up whatever reasons you give he has come to take away a hostage he has come to essentially renege on the deal that Tyrion made way back when and there's lots of connotations that can be drawn from that it can be seen as a message of distrust it can be seen as an admittance of guilt a kind of uh well soon you're going to find out something you don't like and when you do you might hurt our princess so we want to take her back now it can be seen as a preparation for aggression cersei obviously couldn't declare war on draw while mercella is down there it can even be seen as just a general fleecing we got what we needed from you and now we want to take back our payment as mercella is unfortunately sometimes seen and we also want to take your biggest bargaining chip away as well on top of it all it's just general just suspect You are not important enough for this big bargaining chip. We could use it somewhere else. Or we're confident we can just deal in bad faith with you like this and you haven't got the stones to do anything about it, as indeed many Dornish would have seen the situation. And it's also a challenge. We're going to present it to you in this nice, polite, reasonable package. Will you dare to blink first and therefore be seen as the one to start hostilities? Cersei paints it as just a short visit after all. There's officially no breaking of betrothal or anything like that, but even the food on the table knows that if Marcella leaves Dawn, she is never ever coming back. So we see why Balan is tense because there's a lot riding on this, and that's all just when it's Marcella on her own. But then he lumps Tristain into the deal as well. So it's double robbery and everybody knows it. Cersei is suggesting a complete switcheroo. She is going to leapfrog them. You are going to go from being the one with the advantage of possessing a valuable ward to now having one of your own taken from you instead. Duran, we know, is well aware of all this, and yet he doesn't miss a beat. So far, we've really only seen his political skills in relation to his own family, or at least in a face-to-face setting. Now we're getting to see them on the big stage as well. First is his instant acceptance of the premise, so no one can accuse him of not being a loyal subject. Plus, he accepts on both counts, not just Marcella, but Justine as well. Which is more than Sir Balon could have hoped for, really, which makes it definitely suspect that he's sweating, something is eagle-eyed enough to notice and wonder about. Of course, the reader knows that the risk just doubled. If he only came away with Marcella, he'd be going back with half a failure, Sure, but he would have the princess, so it would probably be all fine, even with Cersei. Now, with Tristane involved, it's incredibly more dangerous, and involves the murder of not just a child, but a child of a great house. There's not many larger crimes... It would be dangerous for him in the immediate but he's also probably aware that this would be a war that he's starting on some levels whatever cersei's intentions he knows how this would probably end up and to be fair he likely understands the implications of this far more than cersei even does duran keeps up the good graces so much so that sir balon probably wondering why it's all going so well he even accepts that the open council seat does indeed need to be filled so balon is finally ticking all the boxes even after his long arduous journey but then comes the switch duran will come but he might need to come by boat he's old he's sore, you know so now we get full-on duran's skill as we'll soon find that he said this to explicitly see sir balon's reaction and therefore gave the truth of what might happen if they go over land balon's stuttering hurried excuse is all the confirmation that he needs and that's enough for him to bring the feast to a close still with perfect manners and promises of Marcella and the water gardens and everything else that sir balon wants to hear although he also gives an extended history of how the water gardens came to be how it came from the original union between targaryen and Martell, the one that's hundreds of years old now, how it was specifically built to please one Daenerys Targaryen, as irony would have it, and how its building taught that the welfare of thousands must come above the desires of two. And whether he means Marcella and Justine, or is he pushing Ariane towards Aegon, I'm not really sure, but it's clear such ideas have existed right up to this day, and we're going to revisit that a little bit later when we get the kind of other half to this story later in the chapter. Now, whether any of that actually lands in Balan's mind, we cannot be sure. But we do know that Duran can only put up with so much fake politeness, especially after hearing about a plot intended to kill his young son in order just to satisfy some sibling rivalry. So we could look at this as a subtle reference to Duran's true allegiance, that he still favours fire and blood and that connection between the two families, that he still champions a woman called Daenerys, and that this trick will not be allowed to happen. But he does it all in a way that could never reasonably be called out, even if it were noticed, so pretty smart. Thus endeth the feast, and the first half of this chapter. As Aero follows in the wake of Duran as he's helped back to his solar by the three sand snakes, and with them come Ariane and Delaria. So we have a pretty split crowd, according to that toast, as well as the supposed skull of Gregor again. The sand snakes don't even wait to reach the solar before they begin exploding at Duran's apparent placidness at Cersei's orders, and how this is obviously a very, very bad thing. There will result in neither child ever coming back to dawn. Duran basically responds, "Well, duh." and then gets us very very excited when he promises to reveal all in the moment. So at the very least we know we're going to get some confirmation of what came out of his meeting with Ariane, likely his thoughts on what's just happened at the feast, and maybe even some more on top. That feeling is built on when Tyene insults her uncle, sure in the knowledge that he will do nothing and roll over like a puppy dog as he always does. Ariane responds, you do him wrong which is a gentle reply in truth, but it does confirm for us that she's bought into what Duran sold her during their own private meeting. She's clearly on his side, they are working together, and we might be about to get all the info on that too, so we can't wait to finally get in this solar. Once we're there, Duran wheels around to face the assembled women, and we get that sense of the moment that we always do. Before any new information comes, we are reminded of Duran's illness and how bad it is getting. But really, I think that's supposed to be a symbolic inversion. Duran's body becomes weaker and more racked with pain, just as his spirit becomes harder and he finally puts his mind to use. The first subject of discussion is whether this is actually the skull of Gregor again, like we already talked about, with the question being driven by the Sand Snakes. Their number one priority is always revenge, as we learn in Hotar's first POV. They all have their different methods, but now they want to see which actual form has been delivered to them, the true or the false. Without anything concrete to land on, they kind of just have to agree that it must be his skull, for if it wasn't, they would surely learn of Gregor's survival, and this whole thing would be for naught. Nor- of course, they are missing the obvious point that if Marcella and Tristane were already back at King's Landing by that point, thanks to this skull's deception, Cersei isn't going to care at all if someone thinks her a liar. But Duran adds his own reports of Gregor's death, and the fact that it was Oberyn who used the poison confirms it all for them. The snakes have such reverence for their father, the idea that he ever failed in anything is completely unimaginable to them. So Gregor must be dead, and this must be his skull. Yeah, it's good to have that confidence in him, despite the fact he got his skull crushed by this same opponent. And to be honest, we move on from that pretty quickly to instead shift the focus onto Ellaria, who has a great little bit here. Here's an extended quote for you. Doubt your little sister if you like, but never doubt our sire. Ibarra bristled. I never did, and never shall. She gave the skull a mocking kiss. This is a start, I'll grant. A start, said Ellaria Sand, incredulous. Gods forbid, I would it were a finish. Tywin Lannister is dead. So are Robert Baratheon, Amy Lorch, and now Gregor again. All those who had a hand in murdering Elia and her children. Even Joffrey, who was not yet born when Elia died, I saw the boy perish with mine own eyes, clawing at his throat as he tried to draw breath. Who else is there to kill? Do Marcella and Tommen need to die so the shades of Rhaenys and Aegon can be at rest? Where does it end? It's only a single paragraph in terms of speech by Ellaria Sand, but it is superb. It's the most we ever hear out of her mouth for a start, and the passion, the feelings behind the words, is inarguable. It's basically a fantastic ode to George's own writings on revenge and its cyclical nature. The spread of pain causing more pain, and around and around it goes while not actually helping anybody. No doubt she's been driven to this way of thinking by spending her adult life beside a man completely obsessed with the idea of revenge, and then seeing where he eventually ended up. If a man so talented, skilled, and so near perfect as Oberyn can end up that way, what hope is there for anyone? It especially stings in that this is technically a revenge victory if we accept that the skull is gregor's then the martels got what they wanted in killing elia's killer but if the cost is another Martell life then what was the point on top of that is the fact we're talking about children gregor is one thing he was an active monster with many many crimes at his feet but now we're talking of killing innocent children in the name of innocent children so where does that stop and how does it do any honor to those that are gone is this what they would have wanted truly the sand snakes in their youth or their foolishness or maybe both I'm not happy with this just being it. Nymeria especially contends that she won't consider the matter finished until everything that Tywin Lannister ever touched is dead and gone. Well, if she reads these books, she'll see that his legacy is intact as anyway. The guy was rotten, but still, that's besides the point. She wishes she could have killed him herself to make it more agonising, completely glossing over the fact that that will never happen. And Larys' well-made point that being killed by your own son is a pain none of them would have ever been able to incite is unfortunately ignored. She gives us another quote here. If you should die, must El and Abella seek vengeance for you, and then Durea and the for them. Is that how it goes? Round and round forever. I ask again, where does it end? Elaria-san laid her hand on the mountain's head. I saw your father die. Here is his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me, to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I am old and sick? So she's trying another angle here. If you think not of yourselves, then what of those who will come along after you? There are younger sisters, Oberyn's own blood, who will end up dead when they try to avenge you after you die avenging Oberyn, who died avenging Elia. Cyclical. Pointless. And as she points out at the end, even when you win, you lose if you go down that road. What does it all matter if those who have blessedly remain are given away to that cycle? Still, the Sand Snakes resist. Obara contends that war is coming one way or the other. Although she then makes a counter argument how everyone is fighting one another in Westeros already. So what she means is not that war is going to come their way, but this is the best time for them to make war. That's two very different points. So Ellaria finally throws up her hands at Duran and takes her leave, which Hotar is sad about. He likes Ellaria and with obvious good reason. It's a wonderful message she gives and we can see that she has a priority straight. She's suffered loss and yet joy still remains to her. She will spend the rest of her life focusing on her children rather than seeking revenge. If everyone on this continent adapted the same philosophy, It'd be a much kinder place. And I must admit, I really like that Duran sticks up for her after she's gone and points out how well she knew Oberyn, how she understood him and how she made him happy. Just because she's not a fighter like the other three does not mean she's worth any less. She understood more than you ever will, Nymeria, and she made your father happy. In the end, a gentle heart may be worth more than pride or valor. Still, Duran cannot come around to her way of thinking entirely. What he proves here is that he, and now by extension Arianne I guess, are the middle ground of this family. Alaria is completely pacifist, she wants no more fighting, and there's logic and morality in that. But if we're honest, we would all agree when Duran says that that is not enough. There has to be some comeuppance for the Gregors and the Tywins and the Amy launches of the world, even the Cersei's. The difference comes in the selecting of targets, not innocent children, and even more imperatively, not anyone who can then strike back afterwards. But he is also not on the side of the Sand who so the other end of the spectrum. They are all emotion; they want to act immediately to cause maximum damage. And that might be satisfying in its way, but ultimately it causes more harm than good. So Duran has placed himself in the middle. He wants vengeance, he wants blood, but he wants it in a way that protects his own family and as many Dornishmen as possible. That's the smart choice, obviously, although not without its own flaws and problems, but it's pretty easy to expect where he stands on the issue. That is why he spent so long cultivating such a situation, although current events have dragged him forward to the here and now and that's a problem. The Great Hinge spoke about at the beginning of this chapter has gone nowhere, we've only delayed it. There is still the matter of Marcella, her disfigurement, Arianne's failed plot, and the fact that a member of the Kingsguard was slain by one of their own. How that is reacted to will change everything. Which the Sand Snakes are delighted about and praise their cousin for. Duran's hand is forced. This situation does beg a reaction. More than likely, they'll all get their war. All until Ariane steps in and makes her presence truly felt in this chapter, as she and Duran detail that maybe fate has sped them along, but that doesn't mean they won't try to control it. So here comes the plot, finally. They will tell the story that Eris O'Cart was indeed killed, but by Gerald Dane, Darkstar, not our own Aerohotel. And they plan for that lie to work because it will be mixed with the truth, that Darkstar tried to kill Marcella, also, as we saw. It's not perfect, as stories go. Marcella was still disfigured and nearly killed under the protection of House Martell, but it's a damn sight better than the truth. They've actually looked out a bit that so prominent a scapegoat was provided for them in Darkstar, especially one that happens to be nowhere near them to disprove their claim. So the question is, will Sir Balon believe them? Arianne is confident he will if he hears the tale from Princess Marcella and not from them. He would have no cause to believe that she would lie and technically, I'm not sure he would even be able to disobey her if she ever gave the command of him to just believe her. For the Sand Snakes, that idea is not enough. They believe the truth will eventually come out and the better course would be to just murder Sir Balon and the rest of his party, and there's quite a few of them, just to make sure, you know. So, it would be a massacre of their own house guests. And obviously, clearly, they're not thinking, because I'm thinking, Cersei would probably notice all those people not coming back, so it's not really gonna help the situation, is it? On that note, Duran is getting peeved about the stupidity of his nieces. They're so volatile and short-sighted, he wonders if it would all be better if they just got taken back to their cells, and he might not be wrong. But, due to his love of Oberyn, he tries to impart some wisdom on them instead, in another great mini-speech, We really do get a bit spoiled in this chapter. First, he continues the story of the first Daenerys and why the water gardens matter so much in his philosophy. It turns out he wasn't just imparting a hint to Sir Balon earlier, but also a lesson to his own family. In the end, it all comes down to children. That is why you try to build and create so that they might have a better future. That is why war is always so terrible, because inevitably, it will be they who suffer. There is the realm, she told her son and heir. Remember them in everything you do. We can imagine how much these words would resonate with our current Daenerys. Perhaps this might even be a bridge between she and Duran at some point. And Eddard Stark wouldn't half-mind them either. This philosophy has apparently been passed all the way down to Duran until he made it his core belief, even when tragedy came and his burning heart pulled at him. He remembered the words of that first Daenerys and chose wisdom instead. He is no fool. He knows that wars are unavoidable, especially in this type of society and when you've got the rule, but you can choose how you go about it. Another quote. For their sake, the wise prince will wage no war without good cause, nor any war he cannot hope to win. That doesn't make him a saint, but I do think he should get more credit for this type of approach because we've met plenty of people who do not care about collateral damage numbers whatsoever, as long as they get theirs. Duran, not so. He sees the logic in it. If you're going to fight, try and minimise the risk, try and minimise the deaths, and make sure that someone else can't just come back at you, at least put an end to it. So I'll leave out to you what the morality in that is. That paragraph is hard-hitting, but it's nowhere near as good as his explanation of how he, and his beloved brother, worked in perfect tandem, a balancing act that utilised two very different forms of strength. I'll read it to you here, it's another long one for you. I am not blind, nor deaf. I know that you will believe me weak, frightened, and feeble. Your father knew me better. Oberyn was ever the viper. Deadly, dangerous, unpredictable. No man dared tread on him. I was the grass. Pleasant, complacent, sweet-smelling, swaying with every breeze. Who fears to walk upon the grass? But it's the grass that hides the viper from his enemies and shelters him until he strikes. Your father and I walked more closely than you know, but now he is gone. The question is, can I trust his daughters to serve me in his place? So again, that's another pretty good ode to the smarts. He knows you can't have just one or the other. It's a perfect match-up. It's a perfect combination there to get maximum results, as we would have theoretically seen had everything not gone wrong on King's Landing, if Oberyn hadn't jumped the gun, essentially. We know that story well. We know he got too tempted by the possibility of revenge. He went too quickly and it all kind of came apart on top of that there is the legitimate question whether these three are good enough to replace oberon i think we all agree we really wish we could see him in this role but never mind too late for that alas alarms but well, we'll come back to that question in a minute at the end the sand snakes for now end up agreeing in part because they've likely never heard their father spoken of in such a manner and partly because they sense this is the fastest route towards actually being allowed to do something the agreement is not enough for duran he wants an official oath Sworn on Oberyn's grave. Obara gives some kickback for that, but the three do swear and a barrier is officially crossed. Now we're assuming that Duran doesn't ever believe they'll go back on this oath, but will they? Does seem more than possible. Someone with this many well-laid plans is bound to have something slip through the cracks, isn't he? We're just waiting for it to happen. But again, we'll wait for that till the end. So a switch has been pulled, or perhaps this is just another type of hinge, one with a physical reaction that Hotar sees as Duran sags out of his tension as if this were a key moment. And, key among this, is Ariane coming to his side and giving her blessing, so the teamwork vibe is really happening now. For better or worse, Duran is casting his lot with the offspring of Oberyn Martel as he lets them all in on what he's learnt from his supposed friends at court. Well, that hint is very much enticing, isn't it? We always want to guess who that might be and what they're doing, but for now, the information delivered is so much better. He knows the plot of what will happen to Justine on the return journey to the capital. Supposed outlaws will attack the party and Justine will be killed with Duran himself on hand to witness. The outlaws will be shouting half-man and Sir Balon might even embellish on what he saw. Although there is plenty of room to be incredibly angry about such deception and violence or even the realisation that Cersei more than willing to kill one of your family, if it means getting a bit further ahead in her own pathetic sibling rivalry, is Justine's inclusion There is enough to put the Sand Snakes off kilter of all people. The only is they themselves have had some pretty dodgy thoughts about other people's kids, but now that it's one of their own, they can't believe anyone would be so mad. And we have to figure that both Arianne and Duran were incensed when they first heard of this. A child would be killed for nothing more than an act of manipulation. If they didn't hate the Lannisters before, which they did, they certainly do now. This is a major act by Cersei, it's more than enough for a course of war, and it's going to be a major motivator in Duran moving forward with these long-awaited plans. So now we see why he included the question of travelling by ship, that was his incredibly smart way of confirming what he suspected, which just goes to show what skill this guy actually has. After a few moments of outright disbelief, including thinking a Knight of the Kingsguard would never stoop so low, which we must admit is pretty disappointing. We know plenty of kingsguard who would have gone along with this but we were probably hoping that balon wouldn't the sand snakes go back to their default setting revenge but duran refuses he will not break guest right like some stinking fray we have our honor and besides even without that particular issue straight up revenge is not a good idea long term instead duran has a plan of course he does and we're finally going to see the implementation of one the most critical part is that they will enlist Marcella to lie on their behalf and buy them time by sending sir balon on yet another quest they will make use of Mercella's role as a royal and Sir Balon's own code of honour to ensure that he obeys and allows other moving parts to be put into motion. In the Winds preview chapters, we'll discover how large a part of this Ariane will be, using her friendship and manipulation skills to persuade Marcella to do this. So she really gets the first role, but now comes the giving of the roles for the other three and we get some of our clearest wins up for the whole book for all of Dance, to be honest. For their part, the Sand Snakes can hardly wait. This is everything they've been asking for, after all. This is what their world spins around. Obara is up first. She will have what is initially the most important task with leading Sir Balin off on this mighty hunt, clear across dawn to high hermitage right on the uh, border with the reach. It'll take a good long time, it'll keep him busy and away from reporting to Cersei while obviously also protecting Tristane and it's also pretty exciting for us if all goes as planned. We will open up a new area of the map in Western Dawn and the lands of the Danes who we're hoping to see a bit more of alongside the return of Darkstar. Obviously there's a whole bunch of threads going into that about finding Dawn, the sword or bringing the Danes into the larger fold of the story finally or maybe even crossing over into the Euron storyline given how close they'll be to that whole thing. And this probably takes up the majority of our interest because this is the one we'll definitely get to see as Aero Hotar will be heading with them, even though that's not actually mentioned in the text here. I always assumed it was, but I guess we have to wait until Ariane's first Winds Preview chapter to confirm that. So with that knowledge, there's even more possible plot points, such as aero having to fight Sir Balon like we saw the hints of earlier, or maybe Darkstar, or maybe even Obara. She's shown us before that she does not fear aero Hotar, which is probably a mistake on her part, but still. Sir Balon seems the most likely in all honesty, just for a fight at least, as you could easily believe this is something that Duran has ordered both in an act of revenge for what Sir Balon would have done to disdain, and also to weaken Cersei slash Tommen's protection for the hopeful Targaryen invasion. But as I said at the beginning, it does feel like Arya will meet with deadly failure at some point, you just don't get to be that confident in this world without eventually finding out that you're wrong. I could see that coming from Darkstar, and I suppose there could be some thematics in it coming from Ibara too. On top of that, we must remember that Obara is the sand snake who hates Old Town. Her request to Duran and Feast was to let her go and sack it, for no other reason than she really wants to sack it. So maybe she runs off when the fighting starts, or maybe she fights to get away, because Duran has actually just sent her in the exact direction of the place where she obviously focuses a lot of the inner trauma from Oberyn's relationship with her mother, and she may well take the chance to go there and resolve it. I think she'll probably arrive too late and find that Euron's beaten her to the punch, but maybe she'll even join in. Who knows? As fun as it would be to keep cycling through the hypotheticals, we have other missions beginning as well. Duran does not believe the timeline advanced enough to openly piss Cersei off. That has to wait for Daenerys being a bit nearer. So he is going to allow Marcella back up to King's Landing. But with her, will go Nymeria to fill the council seat as Oberyn was supposed to. So she will be very much the public face of the operation, while her two sisters operate in secret. That fits with her personality. She is the one with the novice blood. She's the one who has the looks and dresses most similarly to the others at court. If Cersei had to accept one of these three on the council, Lady Nim would likely be her choice. But that's just the looks. Lady Nim is also one of the more subtle with her hidden knives and her own request to Duran in Feast. She didn't want war. She wanted to personally assassinate each member of the Last family. Well, she's going to have her opportunity now, isn't she? I don't think any of us believe she'll be the one to kill Cersei. But is it out of the realm that she could kill Tommen? That actually would be pretty fitting, now that I think about it. Duran is a smart guy who's more than cautious, but his faith in the Sand Snakes and his willingness to see Oberyn in them might be blind. It'd be very fitting, as a nod to his projection onto others, as well as Oberyn's parenting style, if he unleashes these free sand snakes on the world, and each of them disobeys and messes up in their own way, corrupting Duran's plan from the inside, based on his own orders. Wouldn't that just kind of be the ultimate irony that he's waited two decades, he's waited, 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 denied every temptation, but then the pain of Oberyn and this hint that he might finally get what he wants just makes him reach that little bit too quickly, like Oberyn did, and it therefore comes tumbling down that paints quite the picture and lady nym might be the best example of this as killing a child like tommen is the exact opposite of what duran wants and it'd obviously be a terrible mark to begin the new targaryen reign on ala robert Braffian, and the original injury done to the martels in the first place so that really does seem to fit and i actually become more and more convinced of that idea she specifically said she wanted to kill tywin jamie cersei and tommen tywin is off the board and i think we all agree that somewhat grander deaths await the two twins Which leaves tommen and as you'll have seen reading this chapter nymeria is also one of the more outspoken about taking revenge and ending it with blood again think of the mention of concealed knives and how cersei is always worried about the danger in plain sight so yeah it definitely tracks on top of that having someone on their side on the small council is going to work wonders for the hopeful return of danny and the actual arrival of aegon slash arianne so we look forward to seeing how that is going to work, especially on a council made up of mainly people from the Reach. We'll get a little hint of that later in Kevin's prologue, or epilogue rather. And finally, let us not forget that Nadine Nym will be in the same castle as Sir Robert Strong, who's due to be introduced later in this book. So if he looks like a certain dead knight, whose skull she's apparently currently looking at, well that is surely deserving of his own plot thread. Of course, she's not the only one who's going to be in such close proximity. For the final mission is given to Tyene. She is also headed to King's Landing, but to a different hill. Her job is to infiltrate the Sept of Baelor and get close to the High Sparrow. And again, like the other two, it fits her role, given that her mother was a septum before her. At first glance though, this is the most confusing of the three roles. It's not immediately apparent why Duran cares so much about the Faith Beyond, maybe hoping Tyene can turn the High Sparrow to support an incoming Daenerys, as opposed to Tommen, but that seems a little weak. Perhaps it is simply just a divide and conquer strategy, get them away from Cersei. Or maybe he's just trying to get any information he can on any fighting force that could challenge Danny or now Aegon. We know there are plenty more possibilities. We still have the trial coming up. as the chance that Tyene could come into contact with Sir Robert Strong as well. Maybe she assassinates the High Sparrow for some reason. Or it could be as simple as wanting two friendlies in King's Landing instead of one. That doubles your chance to open a city gate and let the target forces in or whatever it might be. So that's it. All three know their jobs and everyone is all very chummy as they head off after a chanting of the house words. Although we do note that Duran hesitates just slightly as he mentions if certain things could change. Hold on to that idea for a second. That leaves just Arianne and Duran, and the pair are actually laughing together, so the swing of the needle from the end of Feast couldn't be stronger. Arianne wants to go out on a mission as well, of course she does, she's hungry, she's ambitious, she's powerful and skilled. She could work wonders in King's Landing, but she remains too valuable, and Duran wants to use her for something else. We learn that he has had word of the fleet that we know to carry Aegon and Jon Connington, yet the Martells believe might be Daenerys and, woefully, maybe even Quentin. Ugh, to be so hopeful, unfortunately that's not going to go so well. We know that they'll soon discover the truth and adjust their plans accordingly, but even so, it's quite telling how just the potential of Quentin returning infects them both. Duran is almost projecting that fact just to fit into everything, because that's obviously what he wants. So, alas, alarms there. What would have happened if Quentin had returned home? Uh, We'll never find out. Either way, this is already their top priority, really, not the mission of the Sand Snakes. Everything is finally happening, though. Things are finally in motion. It must be quite the feeling for a man who's been waiting for this for the best part of 20 years. Here's your last quote of the chapter. Later, when Ariane had gone... He put down his long axe and lifted Prince Duran into his bed. Until the mountain crushed my brother's skull. No Dornishman had died in this war of the five kings, the prince murmured softly, as Hodhar pulled a blanket over him. Tell me, Captain, is that my shame or my glory? That is not for me to say, my prince. Serve. Protect. Obey. Simple vows for simple men. That was all he knew. It's an interesting note to finish on, especially when Duran is essentially alone with his stone captain and the truth kind of comes out. There are still questions for him. He's not convinced so he's not maybe he's just not really realizing the truth of the moment and we could have an interesting discussion about whether he's doubting what he's doing is he right to be sending out these three sand snakes does he know that maybe he's being a bit hopeful that they are Obrid and that they can't actually replace his brother is he even maybe okay with that he's okay with actually letting some collateral damage out there as long as it's not at his fingertips perhaps it's possible you could make a discussion like i say Either way, let's probably end it with a focus more on Aereo, who obviously isn't, again, very active in the chapter, but the last sentence is about him. The simple man. The man removed from this incredibly intense chapter, this intense plan, that's all based on emotion and revenge and all these other feelings. Aereo is apart from that, so it's really interesting to think on how he's going to interact going forward. What lengths would he go to? How far do his orders and his obedience go? Is it as far as the need for revenge or anything like that? Again, he is uh, one of the harder... POVs to guess about in wins, area hotel. We know he's going to go in one direction, but is he then going to come back? We've spoken before how about how we don't have a current POV in Sunspear, so if Jaris and Archibald come back, how are we going to learn about that? Could well be Ario on his return. Maybe he'll go up north to King's Landing with Duran if Aegon and Ariana are um, successful. It's very, very possible, but that's probably enough for the first chapter because, again, I don't want another three-hour podcast and we've been going quite a while now. So we'll leave it there, but it's a it's a sad goodbye because, definitely, this is a goodbye. Yes, we've hit another one. I think that's four weeks in a row now we're not going to see ario or unfortunately none of these other characters in this book again which again is a shame because i really like this plot road i like being down in the sun in dawn but there you go we're gonna have to go back up to the north instead a really fun chapter really good to just wake up all those plot ideas one of the parts of winds i'm most interested in personally so i look forward to that but for now it's back to the norm we're going back up north to the cold such a shame let's head into our second chapter of the day with john eight This one to be honest doesn't require that much of an introduction, after all the long chapters we've had of late, we now come to one of the short ones in the book, I think it's around 3rd or 4th shortest overall, and it's the second shortest for John by just 8 words. So it's a fairly quick shot this one, and that's likely why we don't have to mess around too much. What I will say is, again, it's a chapter of two parts like so many are, and the first is John being proactive, trying to find another solution to get another problem, the second is more of him having enough he's had enough of people getting in his way slowing things down being morons so he's going to take them to task he'll listen fine he's a fair law commander but then he'll tell you why you're a moron why we're doing it his way so we look forward to that we immediately start with a goodbye as john bids farewell to val at the gate to the wall like I say, there's no build-up, there's no introduction of this one, we're straight into it. Inspired by his interaction with the wildlings in his last chapter, as well as his failed other attempts, John has apparently decided that he needs to be more proactive in saving the lives of those still up above the wall, because there's lots of them. We know the deal by now, don't we? He even needs to keep them away from joining the Weeper's ranks, needs to keep them away from becoming part of the other's army, or just wants to save some human lives in general. And if he's really lucky, he might even persuade a few of them to join his own ranks. Jack Bulwer and his squad obviously failed. The other two groups we haven't heard from, so John has weighed up how long he can wait and how much trouble he'll get in for doing this, and he's decided the potential reward outweighs the certain risk. So out Val goes to try and bring back not just the wildlings, but an increased level of safety for the wall, and therefore the realm. Let's firstly deal with Val before we move too much further. Do you remember Val? It has been quite a while. She gets a whole bunch of mentions early on in Jon's arc in this book when Stannis is still around and trying to use her as a bargaining chip and Jon has to constantly remind him that the wildlings don't have princesses at least not to the way that Stannis understands the term. But then once Stannis leaves, she almost disappears to be honest. She gets a single mention in Jon 5 but apart from that she's gone for the past four chapters, not there at all. So you are certainly forgiven if she has slid to the back of your mind. There is so much to think about up on the wall, so something's got to give, hasn't it? As for physically appearing, she's barely done that either. John has seen her from afar, walking the battlements of the King's Tower when Stannis was still around. He's seen her from afar when Rattleshirt was burned as Mance. He's seen her from afar when he killed Janos Slint, and that's about it. So this is her first true appearance on the page in this book, and we're already saying goodbye. Which is a shame, because Vow is pretty cool as a character, we're all interested and we want to see more of her, especially when there's always those little hints of something potentially brewing between her and John. Plus, we know she turned into the primary care of Gilly's son, so overall it's just a shame. As a reminder for you, Val has remained, again, pretty cool during her time at Castle Black. She refused to join in with the prayers to a law, she kept trying to escape, even if it meant being violent, unfortunately. She kept up the resistance in some ways. So does that make John more confident she'll be successful? Or more worried that it means she will never come back now that he's given her the opportunity? The risk is still worth it for him. He needs the wildlings and his other attempts have failed. Besides, it makes logical sense. Val is going to know where the wildlings might go better than the rangers would. She claims on top of that she knows the forest in general better than any ranger, which may well be true. She also claims that she doesn't need to worry about violence from any wildling. Now I'm less confident in that statement. It's true she has much less risk than the Rangers obviously, but I don't think that the Weeper wouldn't love to get his hands on her just as a screw you to the wall or any of them out there that have got nothing left to lose or even maybe those bitter at Mance. Danger does exist, but then Val considers herself a fighter and worries not about human danger. However, there is the unspoken hazard that all must worry about in the others we definitely, definitely do not want her coming across any of those, do we? So John is willing to accept that risk as well as the possibility that she'll use the opportunity to just abandon them. But she gives John her word and we get the sense that she intends to keep it. I think it's Tormund who later has a quote about how wildlings always stick to the word, I can't quite remember the exact wording, I might be crisscrossing with the show here, but she's especially cool when she goes all Gandalf on us and tells us exactly when she'll be back, look to the dawn basically. Jon sure hopes he can pull an Aragorn and believe in that, because if not, it doesn't just mean he's lost his chance to get the wildlings on side and out of danger, he would have also given away a major commodity for Stannis' war. kind of anyway John has told Stannis over and over again she is not worth what he thinks she is not to the wildlings at least but Stannis and his southerners refuse to listen, which creates an interesting discussion on how people could be made to be more important just by sheer belief. If all the southerners think she's as worthy as a princess and treat her as a princess, then how far away is that from the truth? You are what people make you. It's a very, very interesting discussion. So she has a worth and value. Whatever the truth might be, Stannis wanted her kept close and John has directly disobeyed that order. Now we could have a very long conversation about whether John is under any legal obligation to completely and totally follow through on all these orders, but even if there's not, It's not exactly a sign of good faith is it besides we can debate technicalities and who has the right to what but john gave his word so not only is this a matter of honor to him personally but if stannis wants to come up here and punish john for this john's got no way to resist we know that still because he's john and he does cherish said honor he's tried to find an internal loophole in his head by framing it as stannis said keep our princess close and John saying, Well, she's not a princess, so technically I'm not breaking an order, am I not disobeying an order? That's a take that would be more comfortable on a playground, and it's actually pretty funny when you think about it, but John needed this to get to the bottom line of being able to move along with his plan. Still, he's not proud of it, but he surmises it best with this line I am the sword that guards the realms of men, John reminded himself, and in the end, that must be worth more than one man's honour. That's a hell of a line, isn't it? It feels like one of the ones we're going to end up referring to. A hell of a lot is foreshadowing and really just opens the door on lots of different paths for John having to do something bad or dishonorable in order to serve the greater good later on. And this might be especially true if he does return from death as a generally darker person, as many people have predicted. Being that honour and truth are such a large part of John's personality, and his desire to emulate Ned's teaching as well, it really is interesting to imagine how that conflict might manifest. We've seen it on a slow burn already, but you imagine that these instances are going to become a lot more obvious and a lot more frequent as we go into the future. So, through the wall we go, and these gates are surely getting a workout in this book, aren't they? Everyone's dashing to and fro. Plus, we still have Dolores' Ed on hand, so that's fun because we know he's gonna be headed off soon, we need to appreciate him while he's here. On the other side of the wall, Val takes stock of finally being back in her world, and you get the sense it truly does feel different to her, even though we're talking about the difference of meters physically. Even the air tastes different out here. So that's all very positive until Val reveals she also knows how air tastes when the others are near. That's a story we kind of want to hear. You figure it probably happened with Mance from one of the times he interacted with the others, but we'll probably never know. Either way, it sends John down a guilt trip They insists that those men whose names were graven on his heart are all dead. They're new additions to the army of the others and that Val will soon join them. He's making another massive mistake. John has always had self doubt, but this is probably the loudest it's ever been. And that kind of thing is just going to accumulate as we go. It's just another price of duty. We see it plenty of Daenerys, we see it plenty of John. Although he has been pretty good at that so far. For so now, he has to keep focused on the mission and the potential that this will work and Torment will accept. Val promises to at least tell him what John has asked and that she'll try her best before honestly surprising John with this. You have my thanks, Lord Snow, for the half blind horse, the salt cod, the free air, for hope. Their breath mingled, a white mist in the air. See, they might be getting cold out there, but in here, we're getting pretty hot under the collar. George knows how to tempt us, and John seems to sense the moment, so he takes a step back and returns the subject to torment. Ha <laughs> ha ha, no, 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 you can run, John, but you can't hide. Sexual attraction to Val will get you, probably. That's another wind thread we're all interested to see. If John is going to change the subject, then Val can do the same, as she brings up Jarl, her former lover, you might remember. He was also John's former wall climbing companion, sort of, and also as another blast on the past. Val figures they are pretty on the level right now and she's doing him a pretty big favour so the time to ask would be right now. We already know the answer and Val claims that she thinks she does too but she still appreciates John giving it to her straight. So now they both have each other's word on something. With that settled Val is ready to go but John is too moody and too focused on the overall to join in with her playfulness. In some ways John really doesn't know anything. Anyway he's confident that even without her promises she would return because she has come to care for Gilly's son and they actually call him Craster's son, but I say let's forget that guy was involved at all and honour the sacrifice that Gilly made by referring to her as much as possible. Gilly's son. Every time, Gilly's son. Val, wary of looking weak or giving up any power to Jon, or giving up any power that Jon or Stannis might be able to use against her, she tries to claim that she has no emotional ties to the boy, but of course that doesn't last long. We knew the truth from Sam's Feast chapters, but it's nice to see her admit it too. It's sweet in its way. Yes, you can be strong and sweet, who knew? She names him Monster, which makes us think a bit of Bran, or maybe what Craster is up to with this boy's many brothers, have they become monsters as well? I'm guessing so. Crucially, she also tells Don to keep the babe away from Melisandre, She's convinced that Mel knows the boy's true identity. And we've wondered about that ourselves many, many times and thought about how terrible this situation could turn out. So that seems like a pretty important message to take note of. Of course, John just shrugs it off. Whether because he doesn't want to believe that Mel would harm this innocent child that he's put in her way, that would be all his fault, or because he doesn't want to worry Val. Of course, the irony is, John is disparaging Melisandre's fire powers at the exact same time he's hoping that they are true and do work for Aya's sake. Or actually, Alice Carstack's sake, but he still thinks Aya ashes and cinders john said kings and dragons val said how very fitting for john to try and shun a truth about kings and dragons given the almighty secret we all know about him as well and maybe val knows something it's pretty weird sentence from her why does she say kings and dragons kings that makes sense okay she's lived in a society of kings dragons have zero to do with her society and what's going on up here as well so why does she bring that bit of a weird one John does his shrugging again. He shrugs off that line along with the idea that Melisandre could possibly know the truth about the baby switch, because surely if she did she would have acted. By means of goodbye, Val reminds him of the fickleness of fire, and better yet, her sister's famous quote about a sword without a hilt. We've discussed that one in the past, how much we love that line, so I won't go over it again, especially as John is doing his best avoidance effort. He can't stick with that logic anymore, even though he really bought into it before. Not if he wants to make progress. He's already willing to risk his honour to be the shield of men, so he's ready to do the same now over magical safety. As the three men, John, Mully and Ed, watch the lone woman disappear into the trees, with John worrying that he's made another wrong choice, as he generally tends to do, Molly really brings up that this is going to unearth another problem. Forget the eventual potential wrath of Stannis, this is going to have a reaction within the castle, here and now. Maybe they can wake up early than everyone else and do it all in the hush, but word is going to get out, and then the whispers about John will only get louder. We've spoken in just about every John chapter about the political state of Castle Black right now, and how much of a percentage of his men he could call supporters. The anti john blokes are going to leap on this. We know the type, we've seen them do it before. John has this quote. The worst part was, they were not wrong, not wholly. Words are wind, and the wind is always blowing at the wall. Come. So John brushes it off again because he had little other choice. He's got to show a brave face in order to keep the supporters he does have. He's got to remain confident. Still, that wind's line is pretty cool. Back inside, such a gloomy mood transfers over to other thoughts, such as ghosts increasing boredom over his empty hunts, and whether John will live to see another spring. Well, yes and no John, technically, I think. He manages to sneak in maybe three bites of lunch before the leaders of the anti-John movement arrive and we get to our second part of the chapter. After all, what is a John chapter without Bowen Marsh coming to complain? Only this time he brings chums in Offal Yarwick and Septon Salador. These two don't make the best teammates if we're honest. Salador just wants a drink and Offal just wants to be anywhere else but here, whereas Bowen wants a fight. He's been building and building and building in frustration. Again, we've seen it in every chapter, so there has to be some eventual overspill, And here it is, he's had enough, he can't keep quiet. Bowen is actually annoyed enough to refuse to break bread with this man that he basically now considers the enemy. The other two are much more friendly, but John doesn't keep Bowen waiting, instead going directly to the source of their conflict, Val. But that's as far as he'll let his outstretched hand go, especially when Bowen claims that other men have complaints as well. They very likely do, but I think John suspects that Bowen is exploiting that fact to legitimise his own complaints. So John will recognise them, but he's not letting Bowen come in here, barging in and running this meeting. He still has to maintain authority and dominance, especially if the men are as split as he thinks. So he bulls over Bowen's issue for now to talk about his own issues first. He's Lord Commander, he gets first dibs. He turns on Offal first, inquiring about how the work on the Nightfall is going because Selyse Baratheon is getting bored with, the, with Eastwatch. Apparently, it's close enough for habitation, even if it's not going to be comfy living, so that sets up another future plot in Selyse now coming over to Brotherus as well. When Offal says he could use another builder, Jon again attacks another issue straight on by offering up 1-1, even if he knows what these three must think of the giant. And here is where we really get our first information on 1-1. We didn't actually get that much last time. We get his name, and we learn about his communication ability that he shares with levers. More importantly, the fact that he's more than capable as a worker. Indeed, he's worth a dozen men. And given that men are exactly what the Night's Watch lacks, 1-1 is an incredible force multiplier, even just in terms of construction and maintenance. We also like to think how valuable that strength might be if it ever comes to a fight. Unfortunately, we'll find out at the end of the book, and it's not exactly what we might hope for, but perhaps there will be potential for more and wins. If it does turn out that 1-1 dies from the injuries sustained during John's killing, I may well have to riot yet again, George, you have been warned. John is well aware of the resistance he is about to encounter, so he acts as if it is the most normal thing in the world to add a giant to the workforce. He must act as if there is no problem with it in the hope that others will follow his example or feel embarrassed at why they are so uncomfortable with it, even if there's no chance of this particular crew, as Offal displays straight away. A large part of this book is John attempting to change mindsets that are thousands of years old. Normally, the stereotyping and prejudice he has to combat is reserved for wild legs, but today it's for giants as well. Offal has been told ever since he was a child that giants are, well, firstly, probably not real, but if they are, they're evil monsters, and he's obviously not about to change his mind now. Luckily, it turns out John was playing Smart Lord Commander. He knew 1-1 would never be accepted, so this way he gets to keep him, with everyone being unable to say he didn't try to at least help off out with the workload. Instead, he now gets to continue learning more about the giants in general, via levers as a translator. Let's just pause here to give John a nod of respect for taking the time to do this. We all know the 1001 problems he's got to deal with at all moments of the day, so putting time aside to do honour to the history of the giants and try to improve his knowledge about all they might have to offer, is amazing. This type of thing is why John is the very best. How many leaders make this same kind of effort or recognise the same kind of worth? Not many. John is awesome. And I'm betting that 1-1 does have some pretty brilliant stories to tell. The giant would lash out violently when threatened, and those huge hands were strong enough to rip a man apart. So John can be as open-minded as he likes, but that doesn't change the reality of what 1-1 could do if he really fancied. Besides, we re-readers know what amazingly specific foreshadowing this is, and the chaos it will incite. He also thinks that one one could be useful in tempting Tormund over if he starts giants with him too. So John is just being smart about all these details, all these possibilities. Bowen decides he has waited long enough to be heard, so he starts back up with questioning John's recent decision to send Dolores, Ed, and Iron Emmett away to Longbarrow. As we discussed last time so hmm, who knew we'd be agreeing with bowen during this meeting because we did say that was a bad choice john bowen does indeed have the priorities of his brothers and the institution at heart some of the time that's voice just proven and then again he's also pissed because john intends to make levers the new master at arms instead of iron emmet when traditionally it has always gone to knights or rangers or well, you know non-wild things so john lists all of his attributes all of levers attributes how useful he could be for the young recruits and everything else, Bowen does not care about that. He could have a lightsaber, and Bowen wouldn't care. He's a wildling, and Bowen does not believe they should even be allowed to serve, let alone take any official position. For someone who despises an entire race of people, this is his nightmare. And it's even worse when John suggests that the recruits learn some of the old tongue and the ways of the free folk. It's integration, it's validation. So in Bowen's mind, it's a travesty. Hmm, what a shame that we can compare this with so much of the thinking we see in our own world when it comes to those that are unknown or different in any way the xenophobia or just out and out racism that we see running rampant in our current times definitely if you happen to be from my own country is unfortunately laid bare for us right here to think about and it's it's not nice the wildlings could walk out of the snows with a thousand obsidian swords and hordes of gold and the plans for modern central heating and some people like bowen would still tell them to hop it because of who they are john thankfully can see the absolute R- moronity yeah that's a word i'm going to use of this way of thinking and he will fight against it but that doesn't mean it's not damn frustrating when we have to witness it and bowen confirms that when he tells them that levers is not trusted he claims it's just the men the men do not trust levers and we see this kind of strategy in our own world as well blanket statements that either assume that everyone feels the same way as you or that they should and we definitely see the use of said assumption as propaganda bowen is basically fake news right here john knows full well that some of the men do trust levers Unfortunately, it's just as true that some don't. And he's actually reluctant to find out who that is because he might not like the answer. We know why certain people feel this way. The wildlings have been the watch's enemy for thousands of years. Even as children, all these men would have been told awful stories about evil savages that they are supposed to hate. That's the enemy. Even the ones from down south will have heard of them, let alone those who grew up in the north with it being a reality. And once you get up on the wall, Those stories don't only increase, but you do see those shades of reality to mix with it as well. You do fight against them. You do lose your friends to them. And that's in peacetime, to say nothing of the recent war against Mance and the actual battles they fought. Bowen himself is a prime example. I doubt he was ever a wildling lover beforehand, but his recent experience on the Bridge of Skulls, the horror of battle mixed with his own injury, has hardened his spirit even more. He just cannot get past that block. So we can see why things are the way they are for some people, even if it doesn't excuse their feelings because, again... They would probably think this way anyway, and it's still a beacon of ignorance pertaining to their actual situation and what John is trying to do. Maybe you do hate them, maybe you don't trust them, but think of the overall goal here please. We need them. That should be the very least of your feelings, but they can't even get over their own prejudice for that. Besides, the next complaint goes to show this is not a crow versus wildling thing, it's a we are better than everyone else type thing as Septon Selador begins complaining that John is raising Satin up to the now-vacant Lord Commander's steward position left by Ed Tollet, despite the fact that he was once a sex worker. John first privately points out that perhaps Septon Celdor is the last person who should be the one to throw stones in glass houses, but then these type of people are always quick to forget their own flaws. It doesn't count if it's them, that type of thing. Out loud, he declares, for what must be the thousandth time of this book, that their own rules say it doesn't matter what you were before. That's the entire point of the vows. All of the past, all of what you were is wiped away. We're all brothers, we're all equal, we're all in this together of course what john is really hinting on is that this has been one of the weakest parts of the night's watch throughout history it's complete hypocrisy on this specific point yes that is what they officially say about equality this is what jill Mormont lectured on about at john's arrival but it's all fake we were made aware of that in the very first chapter of the series when we learnt about waymore royce and the extra treatment afforded to him it has always been true good birth quote unquote and background have always been Exempt. The nobles look after themselves. They get special treatment. They get the fast track or the second chance. And again, look to our own world and especially the government currently in charge of my own land. I won't go into that because I'll take another hour there. Mm. So thank the lucky stars, John is different. Perhaps because of his own upbringing and having to see some of the unfairness based on how one was brought into the world, he moves against thinking on class and station A because he knows it to be wrong and stupid, and b because he again knows they haven't got time for that way of thinking they need the best men in the right places this is the fourth quarter this is overtime we can't be dilly dallying around with your snobbish classism he told us this straight off in his last chapter when he thought about the fighters that he took with him above the wall men he would never call friends in his personal life but must now call brothers So john does not waste time focusing on whatever satin was before again we could spend another half hour talking about their terrible attitudes towards sex workers and what an issue that is instead he points out what is actually important what satin is capable of he's smart he fights well he can read and write after a fashion and most importantly john has seen him turn enemies into friends and no doubt that has reminded john of his own start with gren and the others back in the training yard so he probably sees potential in the young man who, let's be honest, sounds like one of the best prospects on the wall. So why wouldn't you put him in this position? Bowen comes back with the same argument. The men do not like it, he says. By which he means he does not like it. This is a position reserved for men of good birth who might one day lead. So, well, first thing we know how stupid that is. Reserve positions for those of the right surname instead of the right qualities. And again, I think every single person listening should probably be tearing their hair out right about now because we can basically stamp this across all planet Earth, can't we? It's uber frustrating in every way. I get very, very angry thinking about that way of thinking, so I'm going to try and resist the rabbit hole, but just put the mirror away, George. We don't need to see our own world right now. That's terrible thinking at the best of times, obviously, but it's absolutely moronic given the situation they're in right now. The world is ending, and you're bothered about a squire not coming from the right, pre-approved, non-threatening community. Get the fuck out of here, brother, what are you talking about? It's also a subtle dig at john if you care to see it it suggests that he should also have no beginning in the position as steward seeing as he was a bastard and he now doubles down on that by being completely condescending in how he phrases the question of whether john thinks anyone would ever follow saturn into battle clearly bowen is concerned if we start doing things based on merit instead of surname well there's going to be an awful lot of his privileged friends and maybe himself out of a job in response john's temper flashes which is a cool sense to read as he points out yet more hypocrisy. They have serial rapists and murderers in their ranks probably dozens of times over and you haven't come to complain about them, have you? You are absolutely fine being alongside people who have done those sort of monstrous crimes but you want to complain about where some boy fits into your ancient view of hierarchy. So again, George, come on, put the mirror down, take the knife out of our back and stop twisting, please. John puts his foot down and we love him all the more for it. Bo and Marsh sat red-faced. The raven flapped its wings and said, "Corn, corn, kill. I wonder if this raven, and whoever controls it, Is giving John some advice on what John should do with this stupid little man, or is he warning what the stupid little man is going to end up doing to him? Bowen swallows that complaint and raises the next, the two corpses in the ice cell. It is something he does not understand or agree with and he wants to moan about. So John confirms his intention that we discussed a little bit last week, that he is hoping that the corpses will rise as whites. In that way, he could study them, learn what their capabilities are, their strengths and weaknesses, or what they remember and how they change over time. He's had his own experiences of such curiosities back when he was a steward, and he thinks on how his intelligent friends would have understood this to be a smart, imperative move. If they are going to get anywhere in this war, this is the kind of intelligence that they need. My lord father used to tell me that a man must know his enemies. We understand little of the whites and less about the others. We need to learn. Damn straight you do, John. They are facing the most unknowable enemy in the history of the world. If they remain this blind, it means instant curtains for the lot of them. So if this is what we need to do to maybe learn something, anything of value, then using two men to keep guard is a small price to pay. So we again see why John is so brilliant and so needed. If we gave the command to the men in front of him, they would just stick their head in the sand, or snow, and place their own sense of comfort as more important than the needs of the realm that they are sworn to protect, just as Geo Mormont did, for years i think this most unwise lord snow i shall pray to the crone to lift her shining lamp and lead you down the path of wisdom john snow's patience was exhausted we could all do with a bit more wisdom i'm sure yeah that's right john you clap back john tired of having to suffer such fools as Lee's, finally allows them to address their original complaint val and he does not sugarcoat it he let her out above the wall with nothing more than her word as a guarantee and he's well aware of the risks if she doesn't come back or dies and he's equally aware of how much they might like that in a way. He's too annoyed for subtlety right now. He then gives further details both to Bowen and to the reader of exactly what it was he sent Val out to do. Finding Torment, we already knew, but it was also to make the same offer that John himself did at Molestown, an offer of peace and shelter, but more importantly, the offer to help man the wall and fight this war to end all wars. He means to let the wild things pass. Clearly, this seems like Armageddon to the assembled three. Bowen, also too annoyed to be dealing with subtlety, basically calls it out-and-out treason. Again, he shows his prejudice as he labels all wild things the same. They're savages, raiders and rapists. So he's already forgotten John's well-made point that they already have plenty of those people within their ranks and no one says boo. He replies with this. Even if every word you said was true, they are still men, Bowen. Living men, human as you and me. Winter is coming, my lords, and when it does, we living men will need to stand together against the dead. Snow! screamed Lord Mormont's raven. Snow! Snow! John, once again, is making the ultimate point. Whatever your personal feelings, we need these people. Even if we do want to ignore the massive moral responsibility to save thousands of people, women and children included, from freezing to death or being murdered by monsters in the dark. Besides, as I think John makes an extra effort to get across to him by using his first name, they are not some nameless beast that fits the mould. They are not a poster. They are as diverse and varied as any other group of people in the world. They have their good and evil. They have their brutal and wise, brave and timid. They are people, same as every other society we've ever met. We've had that point drilled into us from multiple sources across the series, but we just can't seem to penetrate Bowen's thick skull. And if we do want them to remain as people, and for us as well for that matter, we need them beneath the wall. I like to think that Mormont's Raven chooses this moment to speak up, about John's name, I mean not the stuff that falls from the sky, because he knows this to be the ultimate point, the right thing to do. Or, maybe it's a warning that this is what's going to get him killed perhaps. John Lynn adds on to the information giving by adding another layer. The wildlings he saved last time out have told him about Mother Mole and the great migration to Hardhome after she had a vision of her people being saved there. We had a hint of this back in the prologue, but now we get so much more as John relates the mystical tale of what happened at Hardhome 600 years before and to be honest we don't really know that's the answer there's a lot of theories about this huge uh, conflagration this huge fire that seemed to just burn through this town in like a night and kill everyone and who knows a lot of people think it's something to do with the doom even though it's a couple of hundred years earlier At least some people think it was the faceless men having a practice round or something like that i've seen people say it's the fireworms found in the caves which set some big fire i mean what could create a fire like that in the north something so powerful Some people think it was dragons. Valerians finding out about escaped slaves and assuming this was the bunch that eventually created Bravos, so they come up here, take their revenge. Maybe that's true. We don't really have time to go into it, but it's pretty interesting. Whatever the truth of it, the bottom line is that the place is cursed and it's bad news. Yet still, the wildlings are going there on the word of this single woman, probably because it's their only hope. They'll take the chance of rescue rather than the certainty of exposure or the others. Re-readers know that rescue is absolutely not what they're going to find. Instead, it'll be trickery, lives and enslavement, for the women and children at least. That'll be the start, but then the ships of the Night's Watch are going to get involved, and I wonder how little the wildlings will trust them after what happened with Lassini, on top of general mistrust of crows. And that's before we also get our theories about Davos as well. Remember, Davos 4, his last chapter, we spoke a lot about Hardhome, the potential of what's going to happen there, and how Davos could be involved. So I won't repeat myself, but... Well, many of us still figure that Hard Home is still very much cursed, and the same number of people believe we are going to see something very, very similar to what happened on the show, happened here in the book. I do agree it's going to be a second fist, it's going to be the next great move, next great moment of the others, one that will probably expose them to a higher number of people sailors that will spread the word, and maybe Davos himself if he survives, and the Night's Watch in general, because obviously. Most of the people that saw the others in the Night's Watch already died because they saw the others. And John is clearly worried about that possibility. Based on Cotterpike's reports, if this great group of wildlings is left there, they will almost certainly die of cold and starvation. And Bowen would obviously, cruelly, stupidly think this is a victory. There's hundreds of them there. Thousands, John said. Thousands of enemies. Thousands of wildlings. Thousands of people, John thought. Men, women, children. Anger rose inside him, but when he spoke, his voice was quiet and cold are you so blind or is there you do not wish to see what do you think will happen when all these enemies are dead i know let's be fair some people have tried to see things from Burn marsh's side and understand why he feels the way that he does or what good points that he does make but i just can't move past his cruelty he's absolutely fine with thousands upon thousands of people dying agonizing deaths because they aren't his people to me that's a bottom line then there's no further discussion he's a dick and he's a stupid dick not only does john thankfully have the basic morality to realize that thousands of men women and children dying is a bad thing he also knows this is double trouble and he's getting damn sick of these men with their snow buried heads if thousands of them succumb to the others then the war will suddenly have thousands more enemies to contend with they need saving not only because they need saving but because if they aren't saved the enemy becomes stronger and they will all suffer no matter how much bowen and the others don't want to admit it the same goes for Torman's group we can save them and keep them near and maybe get them to join up or we can fight them once they're already dead. It's up to you. John can't understand how this logic keeps being passed by, and he's done with explaining it. The frustration is coming out in physical form as his sword hand opens and closes, a sure sign of his anger, and he ends up kicking the three out. Fine, if they don't want to understand, he will do it without their help, because that is what's needed, and that is what's right. So the three leave silently, and the chapter closes. So what we've just heard there is very, very important. We're setting up two major plot threads, both for the close of the book, and probably one for wins as well. Don't forget, Melisandre in her fire vision saw about those caves, death coming to a whole bunch of caves, all the fires going out, and then the dead rising. So that seems like a play-by-play of what could happen at Hardhome, doesn't it? We know that is going to be an insanely important... I mean, it could generally be ones like top three moments in wins, depending on the scale and who sees it and whatever else. We know it's going to involve Davos. Well, no, we don't know. We assume, we think it might involve Davos. Very, very easily could. And it's just going to have a massive knock-on effect a huge knock-on effect especially because the others are probably going to be successful in at least some way gain a lot more people they make another step towards the wall it's all very big time isn't it but let's talk about torment spread because we absolutely know that's going to be picked up we've seen it's coming later in this book and that will be in its own way one of the more monumental moments in this series something completely unseen in eight thousand years supposedly with john right in the middle of it when he brings all these wildlings past the wall that is huge that is completely outside the realm of the normal societal structure that is massive so we look forward to getting to that and you know what i actually am going to mention hard home again because it's so big that i can't ignore it we're gonna to have to wait for that to be explained and like we say if it does come off as we assume it will it's going to be of even more importance in this migration through the wall i do think the others come i do think they get exposed and i'm really really interested to see what davis's role could be I really hope he survives this time and maybe he gets to save a bunch of people as well that'd be great but bottom line I think it's going to be one of the darker moments of the series overall. It's not going to be nice, is it? There's going to be chaos. There's people going to be trying to run, stampeding each other, stampeding onto boats and sinking them. I think Davos or whoever else, again, probably saves a bunch of people, but a lot more do fall to the white slash the others. And maybe we even do get that moment of seeing the dead rise, seeing like the Night King figure or just another. Do the arm thing. All the corpses stand up. Dead silence. You know, the one I'm talking about. The consequences of such, just of people actually seeing that, well, I really do not think they could be understated. And something I'm interested to see is if Damos and whoever else is there and sees this happen and then goes back into normal real life, I want to see the psychological fallout after such a thing. I made a big fuss about that on the show, that if you fought an army of the dead and see dead people coming towards you, that is going to have an effect on you for the rest of your life. And definitely in the immediate, we didn't really get to explore that because the show didn't have time, but I think George would, so I'd be very, very interested to talk to someone two days after they saw their mate get his head chopped off and then raise up again be very very interesting so maybe we will maybe we won't the other point of this chapter one that's a lot closer and a lot more obvious is that john is setting up his own fate he's had his clashes with burnmarsh in basically every chapter but this is clearly a step up the ladder now the two of them are completely at odds they're not bothering to mask their personal feelings and they disagree wholeheartedly on basically everything bowen has already said he believes john is committing treason or plans to we know John is going to go ahead of his plans, the gate will open for the wildlings, so Bowen is already probably at the point of no return, but he definitely will be by that point. It might not be outright murder he has in his heart right now, but we know he's on the track if he's not there already. So we have this sense, readers especially, but even first-timers, have this sense of the web just closing in tight and those daggers in the dark while they're starting to glint, unfortunately. And... Again, we know John is right. We absolutely know he's right in pretty much all of this morally, intellectually. But he's still kind of just running on quicksand. Two steps forward, one step back. And eventually this is going to catch up with him. But still, it's a good chapter. I like the chapter. It's John telling these guys off, telling them that they're idiots. It's John sticking up for levers and satin and what they can bring. It's John trying to save people's lives. It's John being awesome. Just being the best. Being better than anyone else at Castle Black. Could be as leader maybe donal Noy. he probably could have done pretty well as well but john is the ultimate so well done john thank you for that quick short chapter we like that one next up we're going to do a very very different chapter completely different storyline completely different feel to it we're heading back to essos for the first and last time today so let's get going let's head into Tyrion 9. It's actually been quite a while since we've seen Tyrion, for normal anyway, compared to what we usually get. You'll remember a few weeks back we spoke about how the essos chapters were really dominating for a stretch there, whereas last week, this week and to be fair for the next two weeks, it looks to have switched somewhat. We'll only be having one essos chapter per week, per little chunk we've got. To be fair, that is because we're now starting to introduce the feast storylines that like we spoke about earlier, so you can definitely see that the Tyrion frequency has dropped slightly to allow for the extra feast and increased Fion frequency. And that kind of fits with his Current point in his arc. Like we described last time, he's in the midway point. Things have taken a physical and figurative lull in his progress. The last chapter was pretty much purely focused on Penny. We didn't really get much in terms of plot or progress in big moments. And I think that was designed to allow these other huge chapters to take precedence for a little while. We have to give some space to allow the big brand moment, the big feon moments. Someone has to take a little bit of a step back, allow a little bit of a breather so George can fit it all in before we move on to the next big stage. And that's not to devalue too. 8 like we said lots of penny stuff and we love penny so that's all good but today in 2 and 9 we very much have the second half of this midway lull or break or whatever you want to call it we're still in the same space we still have the same barriers there's only so much progression that can be done in such a setting yes we do also have the same factors that maybe make this a little bit more of a questionable part of his arc maybe not people's favorites like i said before i can see why these aren't the most thrilling of chapters but there is good stuff in there like Penny last week and we'll have more stuff this week because to be fair this is a chapter of escalation we've got all the same parts from last week from Tyrion 8 the elements are all there they've just all been stepped up they've all been intensified we're still wary of the crew we're still dealing with storms we're still focusing on the relationship with Penny but it's all notched up a level the crew now represent actual danger the storm even more so last week was just a warm up now we've got a proper one and those accelerated circumstances also force even more focus on Tyrion and Penny and how they can help one another at the same time we are re-exploring the elements of Tyrion's views towards other dwarves that we saw last time out his insistence that he is above them and won't ever become one of them well now he gets his first taste of why they might lead their lives the way they do the dangers they might face and he has to get over certain barriers he had personally before the wider situation of the storm arrives to completely change Tyrion's direction and maybe his entire arc's direction as well as we'll see at the end so yes fair enough second part of the midway low, but a lot more exciting with some real real circumstances as well as building on everything we saw last time so although they might not be my favorites let's not them. they're still very very much worth looking into and picking out these parts of and the thrill factor really is increased in this one so let's get to it our opening as it happens, also deals directly with something from Tyrion Eight Back in that chapter, Tyrion turned down Penny's offer of joining the tilt because he could hardly think of anything worse in terms of his own ego or self-respect or whatever else you want to call it. We discuss then, and all throughout his arc really, about how being made a mockery of or being painted as a sideshow is an absolute horror to him. Laughter stings Tyrion Lannister almost as much as swords do, for a whole bunch of reasons wrapped up in his many, many issues. We don't really need to revisit them, like I say. We've been talking about it all the way through this read-through. The point is, he He said no way i'm not doing that i have my pride etc 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 and yet right here on the first page we find him doing exactly that he is riding pretty pig whilst going up against penny on her beloved crunch the dog so the obvious question right at the beginning is why is he doing this what situation could have led to such a drastic u-turn was it pity for penny or because he's been threatened or what else but the question is actually pushed back for a second as george opts to simply examine what the experience is like for Tyrion. Before we go any further, here's your first quote. For one absurd moment, he almost felt like Jamie, riding onto a tourney field with Lance in hand, his golden armour flashing in the sun. So George chooses to show us what this means and what it's like for Tyrion by way of comparison. He gives Tyrion a sweet, fake glimpse of the feeling that he's always wanted. Being like Jamie, that's always been his ultimate goal. Before the illusion unfortunately comes crashing down with laughter, his very worst poison, and reminds him he's actually at the other end of the scale to his brother. All that he managed to do on an actual battlefield on the Blackwater has all been forgotten and he's been left with this, this kind of mockery of such, which he personally believes to be the lowest of the low, how far he has fallen. Yes, he does feel the ghosts of scorn from Tywin and Joffrey here, but let's also not forget Tyrion's own foolish thoughts towards entertainers and dwarves they inherited from Tywin, so he does have his own issues to consider here. We can't put 100% of the blame on Tywin and where those issues come from. Tyrion's got to own up to it at some point. So Tyrion is left with self-hatred and acute embarrassment, as well as hoping this is a one-time situation. He says here... He prays that the armour doesn't truly become his instead of Groats. And, mm, well, we readers know, mm, kind of, is, is going to come up again, unfortunately, for you, Tyrion. But all that considered, we now have to return to the idea, or return to the question of why. And we got a few hints in the first two paragraphs about drunken sailors needing some distraction, but now George gives us something more explicit. They've been stuck, stock still, for 12 days now. The boat, the ship, the Salesi Koran has not moved. They've been in the middle of the ocean, there's absolutely nothing, no wind, they are statues in the water for 12 days and the crew understandably are pissed and you can imagine how much this must seem like a prison to them when moving and you've got a job to do that's one thing sure they're sailors they're used to that but now again just stock still you've got nothing to do all day but hope for wind or movement or anything like that it's a bad situation of course it is this would drive anyone insane very very quickly and they've been there for 12 days that's not good you're all cooped up you've got boredom you've got frustration the tension increases and it's going to spill over at some point isn't it so george is really giving us that atmosphere early on and these sailors are looking for someone to blame of course because that always helps the group mentality doesn't it find a scapegoat unfortunately they found their targets in Tyrion and penny and as much as that might be bad for Tyrion, it's obviously much worse for penny with the possibility of sexual harassment that we actually get the hints of here and we also have to start worrying about pretty pig which we don't like because we like pretty big. so like i say the atmosphere is one of danger 12 days is a very very long time to be sat still i mean let's honestly just try and imagine we can't our minds can't even compute such a thing so what happens if this lasts another week another two so we've done 12 days why can't i do some more moods are going to get worse scapegoats are going to get scaped aren't they so something needs to be done Fortunately for you, Tyrion, it's time to take your Lannister blinkers off and remove some of your privilege. And note that it was Penny who came up with the solution, not Tyrion. I wonder if Penny had not been so brave as she was to suggest it. Would Tyrion have ever dared to suggest it himself? Would that have come off his own back? It's doubtful in my mind, so let's give Penny credit here for basically saving their asses. She's well aware of dangerous situations, so she's fallen back on what she's always been taught is the proper defence mechanism. Tyrion's has always been flash your cash and make sure they know your surname. That he has neither available to him right now, as we keep mentioning every Tyrion chapter. So he must agree to try and make the crew laugh instead, because it's that, or they keep getting pissed. Danger increases. In truth, this laughing tactic isn't a hundred miles from what Tyrion normally does. He's gone into many situations trying to disarm with his wit, but that is laughing with, not at, and there is the world of difference for Tyrion Lannister. So he consented to this, half to calm Penny down and half because, deep down, further, he knows there are basically no other options. He can be presented to the crew as the only relief of their boredom and therefore valuable, or he can be presented as the cause of it, because we know what else is like to entertain them, don't we? I think we should probably note that he's ended up doing the thing that his refusing to do originally cast him down this path in the first place if we want to rewind all the way back to Joffrey's wedding. That's a kind of irony that both George and Tyrion can enjoy. Although I will say he probably prefers doing it for drunken sailors over Joffrey, even if the circumstances are much, much more dangerous. Or, well, you can argue, are they? We went into that before last one, so I won't repeat it here. Anyway, back to the present. Tyrion doesn't even get to pretend to win. If that would make it any better, I'm not sure that it would, really. He has to play his part and fall off instead, although he hasn't had enough time or enough training to practice doing it properly, so he gets physical pain added on to his embarrassment. It's just salt in the wound for him. Maybe it'll give him some more respect for what Penny actually does, the art of acting and play jousting and whatever else. Probably not, though unfortunately all these efforts are only having a half effect the sailors they are laughing ish but it's not quite enough to distract them from the overall situation which again is fair 12 days i'm going to repeat it 12 days to stuck doing nothing 20 minutes watching these two joust each other probably isn't enough to solve all your problems Plus, the sailors have added wagering on top as another attempt to chase away the boredom, so in all likelihood, whatever happens, Tyrion's going to be pissing someone off. Someone is going to lose, aren't they? They'll probably be taking out their anger on him, so it's not 100% effective from Penny here, but again, a lot better than anything Tyrion came up with. He also remembers his uncle Gerion, and that he once enjoyed performing in the same way that Penny does now. But that, in the past, only led to Tywin's stare anyway, and there are definitely no Gerions here. But I'd bring that up just because, let's just note again, that Uncle Joran is being brought up once more, because that seems to be happening more and more in the last two books. Maybe it's just me bringing him up, but I don't know, just keep your eye out, because I do think George is slipping him in there just a little bit more than usual. Again, back to the present. The embarrassment goes from bad to worse when Tyrion winds up on his back because of his arm. He can't get up, he's doing a little turtle thing. So, well, that's annoying enough for anyone. That's embarrassing, isn't it? But for someone who's always not moved so well as they might like, and not had as much control as they might like, it's even worse. And it's obviously just increasing his feeling of being a subject of ridicule based on that inability. So we can see the venom return in his thoughts right at this part. This is him linking anything and everything back to the killing of his father, which we know is like the dark pulsing heart of dark Tyrion, dance Tyrion. so when he starts going back to that we know what kind of mood he's in and of all the people to actually take pity on Tyrion and pull him up it is jorah mormon hmm, and i wonder why perhaps just because this mockery of jousting is making him uncomfortable or maybe even jorah is feeling the need to draw battle lines in this atmosphere against the sailors and you normally want at least a few teammates within your lines maybe who knows it could really be a us against the world type mentality again i'll say 12 days your mind starts thinking about that kind of thing even with this ending, Penny is undeterred. She thinks it went wonderfully because the whole point is to fall off and make them laugh. And that's what happened. Tyrion fell off, they all laughed. So brilliant. She says that is what diffuses danger and sometimes we even get coins thrown in, so it's the best of both worlds. Although Tyrion does note they didn't get any coins this time, but we can see the difference in their approaches again. Tyrion has never had to hope for coins, they've always just been there, whereas Penny has had very different. What's probably worse for Tyrion right now is that Penny really enjoyed herself and now she assumes they will do it again, both now and for Daenerys in the future, which is clearly. Clearly not Tyrion's wish he can't imagine anything worse for this introduction to the person that he's traveled across half the world to see who is the most important and again we'll call her gravitational person in this side of the world maybe the whole world he does not want that first impression to be one that he like we keep saying thinks is the lowest of the low and far beneath him And maybe there is some truth in that. It would be very hard to get rid of that image from Daenerys' eyes, he believes at least. And he wants to head up further back up the ruling ladder, if you get what I'm saying. He doesn't want to start back at the bottom again. He already had to work his way up bit by bit in King's Landing, although he did jump quite a few steps, thanks to Danny but he's not looking to put in years of work with Daenerys here. He's coming to make an effect. He's coming to make a change. He wants to walk right into the ruling council and have some power again. He doesn't believe this entrance, this introduction would accomplish that. So okay, fair enough. But we can see why Penny is so hopeful. This is a return of half her world. Cast your mind back to Tyrion eight. We discussed about how jousting and everything she did with her brother was her her world. It was all she's ever known. And she thought that was gone forever, but then found out, oh no, I actually get a return. It's come back to me. So it's not just a hope for her as a means to live but it's also the thing she enjoys the most this is her thing and right now in this moment she's probably enjoying the nostalgia of being with her brother and Tyrion is in his place so she's definitely keen to keep it going and to go again right now let's do it again right now i love it so much which is sweet in its way but there are shades of naivety there as well because she's thinking eventually the sailors will pay them and they'll just enjoy it more and more she's kind of closing herself off from the reality of the situation that one they're definitely never getting paid and two this isn't going to work forever but right now, in fairness, the sailors do agree. They want more, they want more, because what else is there? So they start demanding, and we can imagine pretty easily how this could get ugly if allowed to. That early atmosphere just keeps piling on. So George has really gone out of his way to make this a very different feeling to the Slaestri Koran from the first chapter of uh, Tyrion's Midway Long. Luckily, the captain interrupts right here, as he wants the crew to row out in search of a wind. And remember, we spoke before of this being a heavy, ugly tub it's a hell of a thing to pull via rowing this is a cog remember as Tyrion reminds us when he's wishing for a galley instead and just in case you're not familiar or you need a reminder the galleys i'll give you the difference here the galleys they're your swifter slimmer ships mainly powered by rowing when we think of them we probably think more of kind of greek Roman ships now I'm I'm sure that's not entirely accurate but for the layman first general folks that's probably what we think of if you've played Assassin's Creed Odyssey I think that's the ship you get don't quote me on that but that's the kind of thing we're thinking about when we talk of galleys when Tyrion mentions galleys Whereas Cogs, they are much larger obviously, they are focused more on transporting goods rather than soldiers, so they're a lot wider, they're generally powered by sails, or maybe even a single sail, and therefore they're a bit less manoeuvrable. So we know which type Tyrion would obviously prefer right now, but obviously there's not a lot of commercial galleys going from Volantis to Calf. this is a trade ship, there's a lot more opportunity, that's why he's ended up on such. so we can hope all he likes, but this is the reality so that's just a little reminder for you there but any either way whatever it's a help in the interim to get the crew away and out onto the the little boat so they can tug the cog along but it's really not going to help the overall situation if anything it's going to make them angrier sorer and in need of more entertainment so okay fine instant relief but overall we're adding to the atmosphere as Jorah helps Tyrion out his armour, he warns about Penny needing to bar her door to protect the animals and probably herself as well, because again, the mood is going to be dark later. There's only so long a crew can go on with basic rations and all this rowing when there's a walking pig on the ship, especially angry drunk sailors. And Tyrion knows how devastating that would be, I don't even really want to imagine it to be honest half of Penny's entire way to survive that is what we're talking about here yeah okay it's just an animal and let's get our priorities straight on the needing to survive here but for Penny this is survival without pretty pig she's kind of helpless both again in the interim right now in terms of keeping these sailors happy but then what happens on the other side when they get to wherever they're going Penny has no place in the world once more like we just thought a minute ago with her brother she's got no way to live or earn a living and to be fair this is only working right now because she has Tyrion and that's not permanent in all fairness Tyrion is probably the easy one to replace for this act but we know that's all half the effect only money is one thing sure but Penny would be beyond crushed if this happens she loves both of these animals and she's already suffered enough extreme loss with her brother and this would just be another blow and of course i know we're not comparing brother to animal here but it's gonna hurt it's gonna hurt real down deep aside from whatever she is with Tyrion, these are her only friends in the world this is all she has so it'd be beyond heartbreaking so Tyrion, therefore he knows this first of all let's probably give him some credit for being aware because again he wouldn't have bothered recognizing it a few chapters ago but he does here so he tries to take some subtle measures to stop that occurring That's hitting both an emotional need to protect penny And he's being realistic. Without Pretty Pig, they have no act, and it's only so long until they are next. To do this, he tries to enlist Doror Mormont, because he's the only one who can do anything to stop the sailors, either by intimidation or force. And Tyrion thinks this is a possibility, because he probably thinks that Doror has softened slightly. He freely gave the advice about the animals, he did help Tyrion up, so maybe he can be persuaded but not if you ask him outright, Tyrion knows that. The best way is probably to bring up Daenerys. Remind him that he needs Tyrion if his gift-giving idea is going to work. If he wants to live, he needs Penny and he needs the animals. Bring it all together is what Tyrion thinks. That's the theory anyway, but it doesn't really go well. The conversation starts out with talking about how Tyrion is going to be of worth to Daenerys, or what worth he could be, but he can't resist a dig back at Jorah about his own sticky situation. The problem is, we know that Tyrion hates people acting higher than him, and Jorah, to be fair, is certainly doing that here, when he talks about Tyrion being dealt with justly. Well, he's really being a complete hypocrite, isn't he? That's what digs at Tyrion. So when Jorah is a bit rough in his reply... Tyrion is going to be a bit rough back. If Jorah believes that Tyrion will receive punishment from Daenerys, then Tyrion can say the same thing. As he did with Jonquiton, as he did with Aegon, Tyrion has puzzled out a bit more of the backstory, which he presents to Jorah just to remind him of this need again to keep Tyrion, and therefore Penny, and therefore the animals, alive. You think Daenerys will execute me and pardon you? But the reverse is just as likely. Maybe you should hop up on that pig, Sir Jorah. And that's all completely true. This is a fair cop the fair thing to say back to Joy because he's misrepresenting himself isn't he? he's ignoring the larger problem of what he's got for Daenerys. But Tyrion's solid plan has now been corrupted by his own mouth and that need to get a dig in. Joy well knows that this is all a fool's hope possibly, and anything could happen, yet it's all he has in the world, just like Penny in a way. And he's so desperate to get back to Daenerys that this matters more than anything, more than life itself. So even the mere hint, the mere suggestion there might not work, or could even be his end. That doesn't sit well. And we know he can't handle his emotions or anyone challenging him or saying no, and in a similar way Tyrion has figured out that this is how to hurt the guy. We know that is a particular strength of Tyrion's finding the weakness and now he's poked at it. So like the brute he is, Jaw lashes out. He's like an animal when he's confused or hurt. He is the bear, isn't he? So he lashes out, Tyrion gets knocked down and he loses a tooth for his trouble. And he actually ends up hurt more here than anything that tilted to him. And also just another thing to add in here, the pointing out that Jaw needs Tyrion That is also well and true, but Jorah doesn't want to hear that, does he? He doesn't want to hear that because that would mean giving a little bit of power to Tyrion. Now, I mean the very slight rearranging of their situation, their their relationship, if you want to call it that. And Jor doesn't want to be on the same level as Tyrion. He, in his mind, he's still painting himself as the noble knight who was in the riot the whole time. He's never done anything wrong in his life. It was all Ned's fault. It was all Barry's fault, whatever else. Let's all blame Varys. I've never done anything wrong. I've been hard done by. I've gone to get a gift in Tyrion. I'm bringing back to Daenerys. I'm not the same as this guy. She's going to love it. I'm not allowing myself to think of any other possibilities. That's the scope of Sir Jorah's mind. So, this little hint of anything to the contrary, he's going to lash out, which he does. So, tuin's lost a tooth, but on top of that, he's lost his cabin and therefore his comfort and safety. And as he tells Penny down below, he has also lost the hope of protection for them from Jorah Mormont, which was his original purpose. He just can't help himself. His tongue, as it so often does, gets him in trouble. But it does push the relationship with Penny along a bit further, because Tyrion immediately asks, OK, can I come with you instead? Because I need somewhere to go. I need some level of safety, and it ain't with Sir Jorah. And Penny, upon hearing all this, she has a response. You mustn't mock him. Don't you know anything? You can't talk that way to a big person. They can hurt you. Sir could have tossed you into the sea. The sailors would have laughed to see you drown. You have to be careful around big people, be jolly and playful with them, keep them smiling, make them laugh. That's what my father always said. Didn't your father ever tell you how to act with big people? So I include that just because it's a superb insight into how she's been raised and how different the world looks to her, even though she and Tyrion obviously share such a key similarity. And again, Tyrion has his own private thoughts about his relationship with his father, but he does reply with this. I have a deal to learn about being a dwarf. Perhaps you'll be good enough to teach me, in between the jousting and the pig riding. So maybe that's just throwing a bone of kindness to her there. Maybe it's even a bit of sarcasm. But it's also very much true, and it's good to hear that he is at least recognising it. Penny wants to know about the Sajora's truths that Tyrion mentions, and that directs Tyrion to think about love. And it actually means we get a Shay mention again. Although... Once more, it comes after thinking of Simon the singer, the one that Tyrion killed. Shade just can't catch centre stage, can she? Such a thought, especially of his murdering her, puts Tyrion on the bad vibes train again, as he reflects on how love has made fools of both him and Jorah. Although neither of them actually had it, so it's more the illusion of love. And I'll be honest, I've never actually made that connection between them before. There is a real link between these two characters. Jorah thinks he was in love with Daenerys, who is actually more obsessed and that love has never returned. He became, again, completely obsessed with it. Tyrion, he wanted love with Shay, There was something a lot more close to love between them two than Jorah and Daenerys, at least. But it was still not really there. It was the illusion. It was something he put on it instead of what it really was. So the same for Jorah. So that's a real cool connection there that, again, I've never seen before. So, so far, we've had danger. We've had tension. And now we've got grumpy Tyrion thinking about lost loves and all of that kind of thing, as well as moody Jorah. But the whole atmosphere changes when they feel a hint of wind. And Penny is just pure and excited and it warms Tyrion's heart a little bit just to see someone who can still act as such as someone who can feel that kind of excitement. I mean, she even wants to race him up to the deck here. She's just so full of life when Tyrion has been full of the opposite so far in this book. Now, some of that is bittersweet because it means she still has to learn some of the realities of this world, but it's just another step in making Tyrion appreciate life. Like we hinted in that last time, Penny is just dragging him back, showing him that such things are possible really he just needed a reminder all along because let's face it he's not got a lot of that in these books has he unfortunately they get up on deck and the atmosphere changes once again almost instantly but in the wrong direction there's wind sure but that only means it's a storm and we can pretty much gather the rest ourselves we already suffered through one storm in the last chapter and george isn't in the habit of lowering tensionity. everything builds so if we had one last time this one's probably going to be bigger it's probably going to be worse Probably going to have more of an effect so the hint of danger we got all through this first half of the chapter that's all come to a point but it actually turns out it's not from the crew at all it's from nature it's from this dark boiling sky they see on the horizon and they get the same feeling as us something bad is going to happen here right on cue makoro appears to basically confirm that yes this is going to be really bad news this is the storm that he has foreseen in his fires this is the actual reason the ship will never reach calf which Tyrion realizes with quite a single sinking feeling, pun intended. This is why you should never get yourself involved with visions and prophecies or whatever else. Politics, they're difficult enough, but this is worse. He assumed that not getting to calf would be by choice of the captain or a mutiny by Makoro himself, not because of life threatening storms. But Makoro confirms in a voice like a funeral bell which is quite the cool turn of phrase, that yes, that is exactly what's going to happen, which gives us all the atmosphere we need for what's coming here. I wonder if there's some kind of a sense of the divine with this being a sent storm from the visions that makes it seem more powerful and pointed, more targeted towards Tyrion. I wonder if that builds up the fear in his mind. Poor Penny, meanwhile, is just confused as she overhears this conversation, but wary Tyrion is busy thinking about how they're going to deal with this. Last time out, they both had their kind of cathartic moment of coming out and embracing the storm, facing it down, challenging nature itself, Tyrion smartly senses this is probably not going to be a good idea this time round, so he quickly makes plans to hide down below if the storms should catch them. And given that latest interaction with Jorah, they all hide down together in Penny's cabin. Here's no quote "View for, for the better part of three hours, they ran before the wind as the storm grew closer. The western sky went green, then grey, then black. A wall of dark clouds loomed up behind them, churning like a kettle of milk left on the fire too long. And then George keeps going and gives us another one here. The last storm had been thrilling, intoxicating. A sudden squall had left him feeling cleansed and refreshed. This one felt different right from the first. So that just goes to point out what we said there, doesn't it? last time was one thing this is very very different already as soon as they get down the cabin has begun to tilt and jump and it's going this way and that way as the waves start hammering at the hull of the ship Ugh, no. yeah soon the storm comes itself like i say in the form of huge waves and now we've got stabbing lightning and Tyrion decides okay now's the time we need to get away it's no longer safe to watch as cool as george's descriptions are yes it is going to be rough to try and ride out down below and me personally i'm not jealous of them here but safety first so down they go into Penny's cabin, into this sickening, awful kind of prison that again we described last time out, that was bad enough, this time's going to be worse. And the, the poor animals are here as well and they need comforting because this is obviously hell for them. And if you know me at all, that's a straight dagger to my heart because I hate to imagine them in distress. And it's while they're tying things down and trying to calm the animals that Penny admits that she's scared, as well she should be. Tyrion is already privately consoling himself that while it might be likely that they're going to die, it is better than some ends. That does include some unfortunate thoughts about Shay, but at least he's thinking of her for a record second time in the chapter. Tyrion is trying to think of anything he can do to help, so he suggests a game that might take Penny's mind off this surely sickening motion of the ship going up and down and all around, and even this is a pretty big sign for Tyrion. He does care, genuinely, he's trying to make things better for her if he can, and we're going to see more and more of that as we go, so it's another big step forward. Unfortunately, though, with all his intent, he can't think of a game that's going to work in a storm. He can only think of those meant for highborn children, because they're the only ones he's been taught. It's Fair enough. As Tyrion thinks, and the ship roils, it's Penny who actually ends up making a choice to try and quell her fear. She kisses Tyrion. It's a go-for-broke type of moment. If not now, then when? It's not going to matter if the ship breaks apart at any moment, is it? You can be embarrassed when you're drowning. She wants comfort, she wants distraction, and as she tells us in a moment, she wants to make sure her life included at least one kiss from a boy in case it's about to end, but leave for the waves. So we can admire her bravery in that way. It is certainly a surprise for Tyrion, but he manages to stave off his initial reaction of pushing her away and instead takes a moment to think. Here's his quote. He liked Penny. He pitied Penny. He even admired Penny in a way, but he did not desire her. He had no wish to hurt her, though. The gods and his sweet sister had given her enough pain, so he let the kiss go on, holding her gently by the shoulders. Trying to play a game was one example of Tyrion's shell breaking a bit and his kindness coming back, but this one is even better. Firstly, we're obviously just glad he's not taking the opportunity for sexual gratification even though he doesn't really like her because that would just be awful in always, but he is also mindful of her feelings now. He knows this is a kiss of fear, not of desire, and normally when Tyrion finds a woman doesn't desire him, he turns very dark very quickly see the entire first half of this book if you need a reference this time he goes the other way and acts kindly he doesn't break it off straight away he allows the kiss that she can now tick off her list he tells her that he was sweet and he lets her down gently by not mentioning he does not desire her either she doesn't know he knows that she doesn't desire him if you can keep up there so an outright rejection would still be very painful for her and not that long ago tyran wouldn't have cared either way but now he does So again, it's another clear move forward in Tyrion's progression as a person. It's not all absolving, doesn't clear him of his past crimes, not at all, but it is something, and it's all because of Penny. So it's just pretty great to see the effect she's had on him. To let her down gently, Tyrion uses Sansa as an excuse, which saves everyone's duty here, really, and protects Penny's feelings. I would love to kiss you, and only the romantic bonds of my happy marriage can keep me for that. Okay, so we know the truth of that, but for now it's a act of kindness even if it does make him a bit bitter and again it's naivety on her part being young enough to believe such a lie and it also has him reflecting on how sansa played him false he says which obviously always rubs us the wrong way whenever we see it i do wonder if he'll ever discover the truth of that i hope so but i don't really know we do get another shade mention though so that's three in one chapter ring the bells everybody although it's a shame they're all negative the girl deserves better than a pig he thought an honest kiss a little kindness Everyone deserves that much, however big or small. So that quote is again superb for showing Tyrion's changed mindset. There's no way he would have thought of anything of this nature just a few chapters ago. He wants goodness in this world, this world that he hated so much. He thinks Penny deserves that. He thinks she deserves more than her current lot. He's even opened that up to everyone. He's thinking of other people, he's thinking of good in the world. This is really a pretty monumental transition, so we really truly have to give it up for Penny for inspiring and this change in him. But moving past that, they are still left to suffer through this awful storm, and again I don't even want to imagine what it actually must feel like in there. Comforting the animals, with Tyrion begging for a drink, and now Penny's vomiting everywhere, and still he holds her tight. The awfulness lasts for a full day and night, a hammering sent from nature itself. This storm is absolutely not a joke. It is a true force of nature from the description. Is absolutely life-threatening, it's as bad as you can come up against. So again, we get this increased power and frequency of these storms, they're just multiplying here, and we're going to figure they're going to keep coming in the future storylines. What does happen is, they eventually reach the eye of the storm, and when they do, Tyrion takes the chance for a moment's relief from their sty of a cabin to go and check what is happening. Up above, he sees Makoro standing on the forecastle, facing this storm, in a way very similar to what Tyrion did with the last one, while sailors behind him work frantically to bring the ship back under control. Tyrion never learned specifically what they were doing, because the wind drifts back in, just a hint of it. And then the storm is back in full force, wind and rain. A wave takes both Forecastle and Stircastle, where Morkoro was just stood, and the sail is ripped into the sky with men still holding it. And Tyrion knows he bloody well needs to be back below if he wants to live. But the storm is already too strong, it won't let him go back. And then George hits us with one of his classic one-liners. Then the mast burst. It's meant to be a shotgun shell of tension, and it is. The air is suddenly full of splinters, and this time Tyrion finds no escape, but he does find luck of a sort. His eye is saved, but his neck and calf especially are not, and for a moment he thinks this is it, so he laughs as the storm rages around him He seems to be taking his revenge on it for daring to defy nature in his last chapter. This is what it's all come down to. But eventually, it does end. The storm dies away, and those still aboard can do some totting up. Unfortunately, it's not good news. The ship is basically done for, listing, leaking, it's broken. As for those who sail aboard her, nine have died. Tyrion's hated cook had been blinded by his own grease and the captain has shattered his legs. But most important for the plot is that two of the fiery fingers are gone, as is Makoro. So Tyrion naturally thinks that he's died, and wonders on the nature of seeing such in the visions. It would mean death for anyone else, of course, but readers know that Makoro will return later in Victorian's POV. For first-timers, we might be thinking, well, this might be good, actually, that Daenerys isn't going to hear about R'hllor and have their pitch to join them. But then that might be bad that Volantis is just going to end up consuming itself anyway, because we've seen what's up there. And to be honest, you are probably a bit suspicious, because Makaro seems too important to have built up, only to have swept him off the side straight away. Plus, he apparently knew this storm was coming, so theoretically, he still knows he'd reach Marines somehow. Or why would he risk it? unless this, this is just supposed to be another example of the limits of the visions power which we have had before at least it does turn Tyrion against prophecy philosophically and definitely doesn't make him any further friend of the widow or Bonero. so if he ever does reach generis we can assume he's probably not going to deliver that message and may even persuade her against going there if he can that'd be nice being annoyed about prophecy is well and good but the reality needs dealing with first. this is bad this is very very bad we thought the beginning of the chapter was an issue well that looks like kittens compared to now The ship is stranded thanks to that burst mass. Even if it does manage to stay afloat, they can't truly move the thing, so they now appear to be in a permanent version of that earlier squall. Eventually, the food is going to run out, and that's if we're ignoring all the earlier problems of boredom and frustration and everything else. Once the food goes, we're going to have yet more cannibalism in this book, and Tyrion knows who they're going to look at first. Things are only going to keep tumbling down as the captain and the cook both die and then some of the ship's slaves take the first opportunity to save themselves and abandon the rest when they are lowered onto one of the rowing boats. Jorah grumbling about slaves is obviously peak irony considering what's coming, but at least Tyrion and Jorah are back to their old semi-friendship. That's probably not much of a comfort, is it? The captain's gone, the cook's gone, now there's a kind of a power vacuum, there's a loss of structure and control, their one source of semi-decent food is gone, this is going to be much, much riskier than we even imagined at the beginning. So that friendship is probably going to come in pretty useful because they need all the help they can get. Especially as this goes on for a further 19 days. 19 days! Can you imagine? And again every day, there's less food, there's less water, there's less booze, and much less hope, with plenty more anger. It's going to go bad at some point, and Jorah makes sure he keeps his sword as sharp as can be. Good idea. Tyrion spends his time dreaming of killing his father, as he always does, but this time it's Penny he's killing perhaps because he's already contemplating giving her the gift of mercy before the sailors can come for her. And that might be noble, but then he also laments that he has no lamor to look at as he once did, and now only has Penny, which makes us want to give him the middle finger. Eventually, he gets broken from this dream because there is a commotion up above, and both Tyrion and we the reader think this is probably it. Something is going to go down, the tension is about to boil over that George has built up over the chapter here. But up on deck, Tyrion actually finds the opposite. The shouting is of celebration, because there's a sail on the horizon. They are saved. They will not drown or starve or be eaten. They are saved. Tyrion rejoices so much that this time he kisses Penny, and they both laugh and flush together. It's a generally wonderful moment, until George leaves us with the kicker. I'll give you the quote here. What ship is that? He asks jaw a Mormont. Can you read her name? I don't need to read her name. We're downwind. I can smell her. Mormont drew his sword. That's a slaver. Ah. Well, we thought we knew cliffhangers, didn't we? And then this motherfucker comes along. This isn't salvation, it's something much, much worse that we obviously were not expecting at any point in this chapter. And yes, unfortunately, slavery it does hit on multiple themes and ironies. It's a step further on Tyrion's journey of discoveries we'll discover in the future about how other people have to live in this world. It's probably a lot closer to that idea than we ever thought we'd get. But it's also just damn bleak. Slavery is a major theme throughout all the books, we know that. But this one especially. Although, countering to that, We've never really had to experience it through a POV's eyes, aside from Daenerys. And even that is quite a different experience from what these three are about to go through. We know, unfortunately, this is not going to be pretty. It is going to be harsh, and it's going to be a very hard read in this book of hard reads. Most of our concern goes to Penny, of course. Poor, sweet young Penny, who just wants to joust with her dog and her pig. That's all she wants. The one who wanted a kiss before she died, and wound up with two. She's going to be put into slavery as well, as if she hasn't had enough tragedy in her recent life. And we don't want to imagine how it might darken her soul we even feel bad for to draw a mormon who we generally hate even he doesn't seem to deserve this because well no one does do they so like i say it's about as bleak as we can get and the other major thought is okay what does this actually do for the plot this looks like it ruins their plans of getting to daenerys how are we going to get daenerys as slaves And we've got no idea where they're going to be taken if they're going to be separated or what it means for these future plot threads Tyrion already seems to have been here there and everywhere in this book and yet somehow here we are yet again at the beginning of another section in Tyrion's long journey and we're probably all thinking this part's probably going to be the worst and we would be right. So that's it, that's the Tyrion chapter today. What a terrible terrible ending to that chapter. Our minds are whirring as first time readers, as re-readers. Well we know the road this is going to go down and like we say it's going to be very very complicated and actually we don't know the end of that road do we? We're still very much left wondering at the other winds. about this chapter today well we only had two chapters aboard this stinky steward but i think many people do feel like it feels like more and i tend to agree but here the lull ends and it very clearly states we're going to be moving on to something quite new and very very important when we get into Tyrion's next chapter i'll say once more before we go we have seen plenty of slavery in this area goes without saying none of it is good so we're worried about what the realities of what we'll see on the ground are, but it's also just interesting thematically. Coming into Slaver's Bay, and maybe Bermereen, although that isn't confirmed for us here, from the other end of the scale to Daenerys. She is the saviour, she's being down the slavery, now we're coming in. From the opposite view, we're going to see both sides of the argument. Well, no, not the argument. That implies that there's some kind of argument about whether slavery should exist or not. Just the other side of the problem, So what I should say. So because there is that connection, maybe we do suspect that this might end up being an avenue through to Danny, because it does seem to fit. But even if the first-time reader does pick up on that, I don't think it hints how much it's going to involve them in the war. How Tyrion will come to provide much of the opposite camera for this siege, just like Asher and Fionn are doing over in the north. Or how it will impact Tyrion personally, because that is obviously going to be quite, quite large. And it's just a bit of a shame when he was making so much progress with Penny, and now he's had another real kicking the shin he's going back down again penny's going with him unfortunately we know this is really really bad for jaw he just seems to kind of die inwardly Another thing we've been hoping for most of this book about Tyrion just walking in with daenerys and helping her out and maybe these two kind of rising up together that's long gone isn't it yeah this is going to be an issue but we'll have to save that for next time because if you want bleak well don't worry We've got it coming for you in this next chapter. Because we are heading back to Winterfell, which I just can't say as happy as I'd like to. We are going back to Theon in the north. We go now with Theon 5, the Turncloak. So yes, here we are again, back at Winterfell, the place we've wanted to be back at for so long. And then last week happened. I'm not going to spend much time reminding you of what happened in Tyrion 4 in the Prince of Winterfell because it was a bit intense like we mentioned earlier on and i don't think you need to hear me swearing that much again so we'll just kind of bypass that a little bit not too much we will address the issues we're gonna have to as we go through this chapter but in general let's let's just try and get past the pain of the ending of that chapter move on to the beginning of this one because true winter actually is welcomed back with a roar of approval You'll see what I mean by that in a second. Generally, in this chapter, what we're going to see is, well, of course, the aftermath of what happened last time out, but obviously just how things are progressing as winter seeps into the reality of what the Boltons obviously considered a victory last time out. Is it, though? Is what's happening good in Winterfell? Well, we obviously know. No, it's not. And winter clearly has something to say about that. There are elements to contend with outside the storm is closing in. Factions are starting to solidify within the Bolton Alliance. We've discussed that plenty already. Now we also discover there's unknown groups such as The Singer, Abel's washerwomen. Uh, washerwomen. He calls them. We know they're not really quite that, are they? And we're going to see the first truth of that here. We're going to get a much bigger idea of what Barbara Dustin is up to and why she's involved in this. The biggest clue we get to that question really. And like we did before, we're going to see why Fiona is so miserable here, why he's so separate, and why he's unique in this setting, and what he can do about that, how he can affect the world because of that situation. So let's get into it, shall we? Because, like I say, I don't really want to go too much into the swearing. Let's just head into it. As I said before, True Winter is being welcomed back with a roar of approval. We're trading a storm on the sea for one of snow now, as Winterfell is wrapped in a thick blanket right from the beginning of the chapter here, and Roose Bolton is welcoming the change. Hmm. He is short in the knowledge that this is going to hurt Stannis far more than it could hurt them in Winterfell. And that is true to a degree. He is right there. We're going to see the truth of that when we return to Ash's POV on the march. Because that is actually going to be our first chapter next time out. So we've already got superb chapter sequencing there. But that doesn't mean that Winterfell isn't going to suffer as well. That's how tough winter is. But right now, all the boltons they're assured of victory. They still have their food and drink. It's still pretty warm, really. Over the next two chapters from Fion, we'll find out what a false hope that is. We're not going to have to wait too long for winter to truly show that it means business. And then even Northmen in Winterfell can't resist it. Especially a Winterfell at half-strength. That's not going to cut it for this winter of all winters. These festivities here at the beginning will go and we'll head back straight into how hard this is going to be as we really get our first glimpse of the reality of what this eternal winter might look like what we're going to be dealing with until the end of the series hypothetically at least until the end of the book and given the title of the next installment probably through that one as well and that comes all within the first couple of paragraphs people being happy that winter is here so we know we know george we know how he likes to set up the joke this is obviously not going to be good for them luckily because we don't want it to go good for them do we and we get our first little hint of that from the dopey phrase we've got to take some smugness from them." not doing so well in the true winter it exposes them for the fake tough guys that they really are and we're due to see some of them suffering a bit we got to see at feast now we're going to get to see and dance or just as good they are generally grumpy about their own losses that we discussed last time so that's also good for us isn't it again linking to next week's chapter we're going to see the same thing with the southern knights that are in stannis's camp and that's just as satisfying given that the two parties generally share a lot of cockiness so this is a good way to just uh knock them down a peg But most importantly, it goes to show that the cracks are already appearing in the Bolton Alliance. The Freys are still very, very much upset about their three missing kin. They obviously blame the Mandelies. And now they are separating themselves from everyone else in their hate of winter. So morale is already low. And again, it's just fun for us to see. We can't wait for this thing to just fall apart. It's a house of cards, isn't it? It's going to happen. We can't wait for it. But what about Theon himself? He is a camera like Asher will be, but we do get a lot of him as well in these chapters, probably more than we get of Asher. So let's revisit him, shall we? Well, he has progressed to the point where he's actually able to dream of escape. Now that might seem like obviousness on first glance, of course you'd want to escape, but remember how he couldn't even bear to think of the possibility of such back in his early chapters, back when he was reek. The mind grip on him was so strong, his Stockholm Syndrome couldn't begin to cross that chasm, and if it was even suggested, he'd break down completely, as if in physical pain, it was really quite alarming to read now with him basically being cast aside because his usefulness has been used up by ruse he not only dreams about it he tentatively plans it out even if it is on the hypothetical level if i was going to escape i could go there i could do this that much of him has returned that he wants to get away he thinks it might even be a possibility and therefore that means he can imagine some kind of existence post ramsay that is a huge landmark for theon we're talking about baby steps for Tyrion. this is a leap Fionn just being able to imagine something other than Ramsay. Because again, go back, look at those first couple of chapters. Ramsey was the universe. There wasn't anything else. So this is big, big, big progress. The only problem is, as much as he might want to, escape is no longer an option, if it ever was. As huge as Winterfell is, and as much as Fion's old knowledge might allow him to find a quiet way out the north has seen to it that there is no out anymore. He firstly thinks that every exit is probably blocked anyway, and there's always the memory of Ramsey's hunts to keep him stationary. But even if he got past those, the storm is already so thick, it's, it's like a video game where you just can't get to the next area. Think back to the old N64 games where the horizon is literally just like a wall. It's like that. There's just no getting past it. This storm has already closed in. It's just a wall of snow. If he goes out there, he'll freeze or starve, even if no one bothers to chase him. And even if that isn't true, where could he go anyway? What could he do? He considers Pike and the Iron Islands a complete no-no, which is ironic given Ash's thoughts in her last chapter, and the fact that right now the Isles are actually pretty empty. Now would probably be the best time to go back. And if he ever added any other place to go, he's already stood in it. So that idea, mixed with his incredibly low opinion of himself, means that he decides to stop dreaming. He decides he doesn't deserve escape. This situation was his making, in many ways. The state of the castle is definitely of his making, so he should be a part of whatever's going to happen. He gives us this quote, A ruined man a ruined castle this is my place so perhaps we could say that the change of seeing ramsey inflict his evil games on someone else instead of suffering them personally is what pushed fion to this level where he believed he could escape but however true that is unfortunately it's just logistics it's just reality pushing him back there is no escape so like back on the ship with Tyrion, we already got this kind of boxed in uh, tinderbox atmosphere back inside the hall now film tells us of ramsey returning sweeping into the hall and shouting for music which kicks off Mance, or Abel as he calls himself here. And what song is he going to play? He's going to play The Dornish Man's Wife. He just can't stop with this song, can he? It's easily the top of his uh, Spotify rap thingy. I don't know, I don't have Spotify, but I see them on the Twitter machine. Mance's part will become louder in this chapter, even if it is a bit indirectly. We discussed last time, we've got no idea what he's up to. Well, we're going to get hints here, but we're not really going to discover. For right now, in this hall, he's busy playing Risky Business, because he changes the lyric of The Dornish Man's Wife so that the song is now about tasting a Northman's daughter a bit close to the bone and for a moment the whole hall is tense until we get the much used moment of the bad guys laughing and everyone else figuring they can now do the same it does make you wonder what Mance's opinion is of ramsey and ruse do they matter to him in particular or does he just want to get this over with so he can get back to his wildlings back to the wall does he know they're evil and not worthy of his north and does he want to help him bring them down Again, it's made all the more interesting by the potential of the pink letter and how Mance might end up in relation to Ramsey, so I dare say we will find out further details one day, but unfortunately, it is not today or any day coming to us soon. Now that gets all wrapped up within two paragraphs, actually, because unfortunately, already, second page, we're already at the point that Fion has to think about Jane at some point. Lady Aya, he calls her, but not really. And he's going to update us with what's going on, even though a large part of us was almost hoping that he wouldn't and we could just ignore such a problem after the heavy emotions last week. But no, that is not the case. And unfortunately, it's as bad as we thought it might be. And we're probably going to be as angry as we were last time. Jane has not left the chambers that have been turned into her personal hell. So we already must assume, unfortunately, the terrors we witnessed before are being repeated over and over. And Jane is suffering through one of the worst existences imaginable. Yes, it does make you want to feel sick. You're excused for a few minutes if you need to be. What a way to start this chapter. And as if that isn't enough for you, it definitely is, just that... uh, you don't imagine what's going on there but on top of that is the fact that a bunch of people know what's happening and they don't say a word and again I suppose you probably don't last long in the employ of House Bolton if you are the type to ask if they have a suggestion box Mm, not a good idea and some think Fionn hears the rumors that Jane is being kept chained to the bed while Fionn knows that physical chains are basically a useless extra Ramsey has his own methods that far surpass mere metal besides Fionn has been given the role of handmaid to Jane, which is a double-pronged insult. Obviously, Ramsay considers it a dire jab to Fion's manhood to place him in a role that this society deems only appropriate for women, and we know how much Ramsay likes to mock the manhood thing, but it's also just a measure to rub his face in what Ramsay is doing to Jane. He knows how much that hurts Fion, so why not make him face the reality of it every day? I've no doubt Ramsay's twisted psychology includes some need to show off his handiwork as well, so it's all just jumbled in there in this disgusting mess. Re-readers know that this is George laying the groundwork for the escape that comes later, especially since we get a mention of the need to borrow serving women for the bathing, but unfortunately we must wait to actually see that. How much better would it be if it just happened now, straight away? But again, let's not focus on Theon, really, but on the victim. I know we don't want to, but we must. Poor Jane. Knowing Ramsay as we do, there's pretty much an endless list of things that could possibly be happening to her, but we know at the very least she is covered in bruises, which again is just tough to hear. She's also already at the point where she absolutely does not care about playing this fake Aya game anymore. Doesn't matter. No, thank you. This is worse than any possible nightmare. Stop playing around, Fion, Just get me the fuck out of here. And this is what she's basically saying while Fion is trying to help her and give her what advice he can, which is obviously no help at all really, but what else can he offer? Uh, this is advice about trying not to make Ramsay angry. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, Theon, great. That's a big help. But like I say, that's all he can give that and to play the game. He is Reek. She is Aya. That might make it Better? Mm, Yeah, okay. Well, we know that's not really going to help, but it at least gives the illusion of control, which Fionn latched onto when he became Reek. If I do this, I won't get hurt. Now, that's a lie the majority of the time, especially in Jane's situation, but we can see why Fionn latched onto it. We discussed that back in the early Reek chapters. But this advice doesn't get through to Jane. She's already a broken soul, if we're being honest. She's already weeping and whispering Fionn's name by way of begging. It is a true icicle to our heart. And all Fionn can do is remember she is Aya. He is Reek, because... Somehow, the punishments will become worse if the truth is ever discovered. As of his last chapter, Fion believes that she should not look to him for rescue because who is he to supply it? He is no one. He is weak. He is no man. He believes that as soon as Ramsay becomes bored of Jane, he will return his attentions to Fion. Roos has already abandoned him. He has no more use for the identity of Fion. So soon enough, Ramsay will return to make sure he is reek again. He will be put back down with the dogs, only with less skin, probably. So you can see why Fion is kind of spiraling here and not giving Jane anything useful. So again, we zoom back to the Great Hall, back to the present, and we get two setting of seeds. The first is Fionn no longer being welcome anywhere near the nobility, but also being shunned by the lower men at the end of the hall, for he is still the despised Turncloak, hence the name. He must sit alone, forever alone, perhaps the smallest price for all his crimes. And keep that in mind, because we will revisit it. The other seed is the men arguing about how long this storm will last. Even the Northerners, who should probably know better, think it might last another day and night. One day one night and those from the south are horrified at such a possibility so we readers all get a big chuckle out of that seeing as we know it's actually going to last until the end of the book and beyond they already don't like to be wet and cold well just you wait again we'll come back to that later and especially we'll come back to that in Ash's chapter next week next comes a new character for us rowan the first of manse's spearwives that will come to meet through Fion's remaining chapters manse and the six women have figured i suppose that Fionn is going to have some incredibly helpful information in terms of getting them out of here How that relates to what we wondered about Mance's true purpose here and whether he found what he's looking for or has already given up or they're just trying to get ahead because they know they're going to need a fast exit at some point. We can't really say right now. We don't even know if he's landed on the plan to get Fake Out out or not. Who knows? Maybe Mance is just saying, "Ah, screw this, I'm gone. We don't know. At this point, it's very much first contact and just seeing if they can get anything useful out of Theon for later use now it's true Mance has been here before and he knows some of the castle he knows his own secrets as well but not compared to someone who lived here for a decade he had access to the stocks themselves and in all fairness he did manage to take the untakeable castle so he's got to know something Rowan's first attempt at extracting this information comes in the form of flattery and sexual temptation because, let's face it, with most men she probably never ever needs to try a second attempt, does she? This is the kind of thing that absolutely would have worked on Fionn back in the day, as he admits here, but now he can't even imagine being with a woman again in the same way, he also can't imagine dancing or even eating comfortably. Ramsay has been sure to steal any kind of joy. So if sexual temptation won't work, then Rowan switches to outright flattery trying to frame his great taking of Winterfell as an amazing feat that would live on through the ages, just as Fionn once saw himself, we know the truth of that, but no longer, not now he's dealt with the consequences, so he chalks it up only to madness and betrayal. That's not what Rowan is after though, she needs actual details, Mance needs actual details, he knows there is something Fionn knows that could help him, although we don't know why he would want to let Stannis in and take the castle. We could go down a rabbit hole with all the possibilities, but our overall tension is rising as we now think it's possible that Stannis unknowingly has Fionn Mance and the spearwise and why they are inside the castle and maybe on his side that's going to be very very valuable when we see the difficulties he comes up against in next week's chapter i suppose it is possible that Mance is also trying to plug any potential hold and not let stannis in maybe he's hoping to take winterfell for himself at one point in the future and wants to know how to get back in again who can say really fion thinks how it was all really more the situation that allowed him to take the castle a situation that no longer applies but he keeps that to himself so rowan makes one last plea for him to trust her just as he notes that she is fine with bare hands even in this cold and that she has rough skin, hinting at her life as a spearwife, But Fion simply assumes it is another Ramsay game because he thinks everything is a Ramsay game. A test to see if he deserves some extra punishment. We've seen it before, we'll see it again. Dreaming of escape is a huge step all of its own but it's still another leap to think that someone else would randomly start wanting to help him or be trustworthy. We know this is going to take him a long time to accept as a possibility. The painful idea of being returned to Ramsay makes all his emotions bubble up at once, equal parts anger and lust. Both of them are equally impotent now, so he storms out instead, back out into the snow. What follows is a little tour of what's going on inside the walls of Winterfell. We get even more than we saw last time, luckily. It's the life of a war camp inside a castle already under siege by the weather, let alone Stannis, and it mainly serves to refocus on what we saw earlier, of Theon being the lonely turncloak and not being allowed to be part of anything. The first example is seeing the squires building snowmen upon the battlements while others hold a snowball fight in the yard. So that's nice. It reminds us of the human element here, doesn't it? The Boltons might be incarnations of pure evil themselves, but this is a large group of people, and not all of whom are bad guys. Some even have enough childish spirit in them to do this, this snowman making. Plus there are literal children wandering around this camp of war. They call themselves soldiers and men, but we know the truth. It reminds us that good or innocent people will suffer if what we want to happen in terms of a standard victory does come to be true so it's a great little inclusion from george there of course the kicker is that one of these jolly lads still caught up in the notion that this will be an easy glorious victory even begins to talk to theon like he's an old chum until he sees who it is once he does he instead turns and spits there's not many clearer signs that you aren't welcome on are there so obviously part of this uh, seeing everyone as at least forging a semi-enjoyable time or having something to do together is to double down on that element of theon being the outlier the loner again Look at the chapter name we spoke last time about how the northerners all hated him specifically because of his status as someone who moved against the starks as the family who housed him and half raised him his liege lords he's the scum at the bottom of the pool and no one wants to even be associated with him it's almost like a curse so he has to walk through this place that was once the very epitome of friendliness and family a place where he was once accepted, even if not in the way he would have liked by some, and he gets another blow to self-esteem and image instead, as well as a reminder of what he's done. He can't escape it, as he shouldn't. We really get that all along this tour. He goes some other places now to give this atmosphere of destruction and waste and more guilt, some more oomph. Let's go through the places he visits. He sees Maester Lewin's Tower. Now he's already had to think of him and his role in Fionn's life last time, so now it gets a physical reminder. His own bedroom is even more poignant. There's not many better places to examine where you came from and what's happened since. He could use some of Tyrion's experiences of learning how other people have it sometimes, couldn't he? Fionn should go talk to some wards who weren't we'll given such nice bedrooms, maybe. But the state of it right now is that it's broken and covered in snow, and that's pretty easily to see as symbolic. Micken's Forge is another key part. It's an important place in the castle. It's where Fion got his own original sword from, and we know how important that is in a young man's life. And obviously, Micken himself was a key part of Fionn's mistakes in taking the castle when he was killed. He was one of the earliest signs that Fion had just lost control. And later, he'll think of him as one of the ghosts he made himself, and maybe he's already thinking that right here. It's also just a shame to see the birthplace of Needle come to ruin like this. Fionn also sees that Catelyn's scepter's been pulled down. He's not got any real connection to that, but it likely was the newest part of the castle, And it's part of the relationship between Ned and Kat, and it's gone. So again, symbolic. The next part of this tour is seeing another of Mance's washerwomen proving what we said earlier about sexual temptation normally being the first and only port of call. So either they've decided they can get something useful out of Rickard Riswell, as film witnesses here, or maybe it's an attempt to keep their cover up, or maybe there's just some general attraction by the two, and they're taking a chance while they can get it. Who's to say? Theon continues, proving he does know parts of the castle that others don't, as he finds some hidden stairs to take him up on the battlements on the inner wall, away from everyone else he can be alone, and allow us to nerd out over these giant walls and the fact that the moat is frozen, just to show how much things have changed. When mixed with the white tempest he sees outside the castle perimeter, we get that sense of atmosphere again. It's while looking out that he thinks of Stannis' forces out there on the march, suffering through this of even less comfort than they are inside Winterfell. It surely seems that Stannis must fail, He cannot assault or besiege them, but their situation is only rosier by inches. Fionn knows their food will not be enough and will soon run out, and he knows the northern winter must be respected. He finds his way back to the weirwood tree, although he doesn't really know why he heads there, especially as he tries to claim that this place means nothing to him. Yeah, okay. Yet, he still breaks down when he reaches the heart tree. Now he has come to the ultimate spot of loneliness, the ultimate place to pay respect as well. And maybe he's just drawn here because of the whisper he heard last week. Whatever it is, he can certainly feel the spirituality of the place. And finally, here, alone and completely untethered, Fion asked for help from this, the starkiest of places. Here's the quote. Fion sank to his knees beside it. Please, he murmured through his broken teeth. I never meant the words caught in his throat. Save me, he finally managed. Give me, what, strength, courage, mercy? This is an important moment, I don't think I need to tell you. Firstly, us seeing that there is a point to asking for help, whatever form that may take. It must mean that he wants to live, after all, like we discussed with the escape thing earlier, it, or he thinks there's at least a chance to live. If he didn't, if he'd resigned himself to just being Ramsay's creature, and just suffering through that, he wouldn't be bothering to ask, would he? So he must think there's some point to this, whatever it is, whether it's escape, whether it's getting through Ramsay, he wants strength or courage or... Well, to be fair, he does ask for mercy as well. So maybe he is looking for a a different kind of escape. He wants their help though. The help of the Starks or the old gods or the trees or whatever it is. Just lend me some of the Starkiness. There might be no Stark in Winterfell, but there is me and I'm semi-Stark. So that's got to count for something, doesn't it? He finally admits that he is of this place and he's willing to give himself over to these old gods, these gods that aren't his, remember, if they can help him in any way. Give me the strength to endure, maybe the strength to help. Give me the courage to escape or fight back or... I don't know, mercy for all of his sins, and that one will probably be the larger theme later on. There are ghosts in Winterfell, he thought, and I am one of them, so, wow, it's a pretty beautiful moment really in its way, sad moment definitely. This all ends when Fionn hears crying and leaves, believing himself, like we said, to be one of the ghosts of Winterfell, just another one that he himself has created, so that gives us another link to his next chapter title, like we had with the turncloak last time. But why does he hear crying? Is it because Bran doesn't like seeing Fionn this way, if it is Bran we're hearing? Does he not like seeing what's become of his home? Has he seen something upsetting in his past visions? Or is it because of something actually happening back there at the cave? We know he's got plenty to be crying about if he's found out about Jojen or had conflict with Mira or whatever else. And we don't know. We have zero answers. Like we talked about with Bran before. Okay, we get these little hints that he's here in some way, but we don't know what's going on with him. It could be any of those. It could be all of those. We really don't know. We're pretty desperate to find out. I'm sure you have your theories. and I'd love to hear them. It's back to the hall now, after witnessing some more of the snowmen's more creative endeavours, before Barbary Dustin reappears to take us towards her biggest moment in the books and the end of this chapter. Like everyone else we've seen today, she's aware that Fionn knows the castle. It appears to be his last trait of any value to anyone. So she enlists him to take her down to the crypts, despite his protests about the cold and the creepiness. She really wants to see some dead Starks and i mean fion can't really disobey can he he's no one so he agrees and we can get pretty excited to see these again because it's been a while isn't it they're a major part of the castle so this is all very thrilling to us and as they progress towards these famous crypts we see that the castle is already beginning to suffer worse than they thought they were after a mere day of the storm of one day the guards are frozen the tents are already sagging the snow is knee height and it's only going to get so much worse but past that we now return to the gargoyles and the characteristics of this area of the castle and are therefore reminded of all these past storylines this is where bran fell in game of thrones this is where bran emerged in clash of kings so we really are opening up some of our old favorites and you know we love doing that this is what we wanted to come back to winterfell for: the reignition of the starks and this is the biggest part we've had of that so far it's just very very exciting it's just another very strong reminder of what once was, what we might get again, and Fionn's part in both of those factions. But places this cool should make you work for it, and so the crypts do just that first, with the frozen door, and then with the narrow descending steps. You've got to earn your way in here. On the way down, Barbary asks Fionn to make Ramsay treat Iyer better, which basically makes us spit our soup clear across the room due to our laughter. In fairness, Ramsay would love Fionn to suggest that. He would give him an excuse for all manner of terrible punishments. Still, her point is well made she is concerned with the long-term health of Bolton rule. They needed it, quote unquote, to even truly get their foot in the door. But if word gets out about the abuse she's suffering, as we already know has started to happen, it'll crumble fast as you can blink. And it's one short step from that to discovering it's not ire at all, isn't it? Yes, we have this storm and Stannis to keep everybody occupied at the moment, but ideally, that will not always be the case. So Ramsay needs to employ some of the intelligence we know he lacks, some forward thinking, and some respect of consequences. But Roos has obviously failed to get that into him, so maybe Fion can. And, uh, well, rather you and me than Fionn, I wouldn't want that job, personally. Barbary even outlines why the majority of Normaners are here, for all those reasons we discussed in the last Fionn chapter. Almost none are here because they genuinely want to be here, excepting Barbary herself. Most of them still hold the Starks in their heart, which is always exciting for us for the possibility of what they'll do when another turns up, whether that be Rickon or whoever. And it's also a fact that Wyman is banking on, isn't it? And again, you can see, like we'll get in Elements of Asher chapter next week, They want to protect the Stark girl, the Ned's girl. Yeah, we love that bit. As they reach the required level, Fion feels even more unwelcome here than he does in the Godswood, which is saying something. Here are actual Starks staring at him and his ironborn blood. He felt this way before, even when he was still innocent. So now when he comes before them, a turncloak, a confirmed turncloak, he is filled with dread. As Fion plays tour guide and leads Barbary down past the Old Kings and down to Ned's tomb, we start to remember how important this place was to the story. This is where Bran and Rickon saw Ned's spirit come in their dreams. It's where they hid and where Bran learnt much of his power, and where we believe very, very important untold secrets to reside. I went on about that in the Castles book, so I'll do my usual non-repeating here, but it's very, very important. Fionn even manages to remember some of Maester Lewin's history lessons, which would probably make the old man smile given that Fionn was likely the very worst of students. But it is ironic for him to think of Bloodraven as well, given how their destinies might intertwine here. They find that the swords are gone, something else that Theon is indirectly responsible for. And that's enough to creep you out, especially when you've just been thinking about ghosts. Now, we know the story of how the spirits are supposed to be kept within by those swords, so now it opens the door for any number of things, doesn't it? We've definitely got the setting for it in this dark, snowy storm, and it again plays into the theme of the next chapter, as well as maybe playing a role in unlocking Theon as well. There are ghosts in Winterfell, and I am one of them. The swords are supposed to keep the ghost dormant, but the swords are gone. So if Theon is a ghost, he no longer has to say dormant, does he? Now he doesn't think that on a conscious level, but it's in there. Up front, he might be worried about the ghosts he made coming back for revenge, but somewhere deep, it gives him permission to be himself again, I feel. And it may well play into the theory that Fion is the murderer on the loose in his next chapter, but we'll have to wait until then to explore that fully, but it definitely makes sense to me. The first evidence of his subconscious working for him is that George notes that Fion heard himself say as he asked Barbary why she hates the Starks. I don't think he would have been so bold 10 minutes ago so again I think the inside of Fion is ruling the outside right here. Still his conscious self tries to deny her when she says that he loved them, loved the Starks. So Clash Fion surfaces for a second as he tries to put on the mask that didn't even truly fit back then tight as he pulled it across his face when he went home to pike and then came back to take Winterfell. he insisted he was ironborn he was the prince he was a man etc etc and we all remember his internal identity crisis don't we it didn't convince us then and it doesn't convince barbary now as she outlines that he also acted in complete love of rob at the least now answer my question why do you love the starks i fion put a gloved hand against a pillar i wanted to be one of them that is a huge huge moment when fion admits he wanted to be a stark it doesn't really get any bigger for this character does it we've been asking for him to admit this for four full books now when we finally finally get here i don't think i need to really describe how much of a mountain he's just emotionally climbed and the huge effect it has on the reframing of his life and self as well as it being another long step into breaking from his mind prison and restoring that sense of self It gives a different view for almost everything that's happened in this series. His gigantic mistakes in Clash were still in part because he wanted daddy's love and to be a powerful ironborn, but that was only born out of the fact that he could never quite find a place with the Starks or the family he really loved. He was always just that little bit on the periphery, whether due to the presence of ice or the fact that only Rob truly accepted him. Like Jon, he could never quite break the barriers. It makes for an awesome comparison between the two, really. Neither could break in, and Fionn actually had a lot more to fall back on, yet Jon went on to be a wonderful person while Fionn became one of the most despised criminals in history. Fionn just so happens to share this major moment beside one of the only people who could share in such a feeling as Barbary gives her own backstory and where her stark bitterness comes from once we reach the trio of statues that belong to Rickard, Lyanna and Brandon just to jog our memories a little bit. It turns out it started as quite the opposite of hate, as we also delivered perhaps our biggest exposition of Brandon Stark, the wild wolf, who still pretty much remains a mystery to us. We know of his duel with Littlefinger, and if I were Bran, I'd watch nothing else on repeat, but this really gives us a whole other angle of the human before the name. If Barbara is being genuine here, and we must assume that she is, this is about as intimate portrait we're going to get of this guy, or of this era in Stark history at all, really. Unless you're Bran, obviously. Then you can see whatever you like. So this story that she tells, which I won't dive into too deeply because time is running on here, is also a pretty major moment for the fandom in general. It's full of small personal notes like Brandon never wanting Catelyn Tully and the much larger aspects such as Rickard being caught up in this grand conspiracy known as Sovereign Ambitions. We know there's been a lot of focus on that ever since, but Barbary is looking through her own lens. She lost the man she loved thanks to Rickard. Maybe she could love the second, but she never finds out because Catelyn took him as well. And then Ned ends up taking the one that she does end up with, Lord Dustin, down to a war from which she never returns. So we can see why she is hate-filled, especially with all those years of Ned and Cat, the pair that represent the end of your dreams, just living up and popping out kids together just over the road. It's a story we've seen a hundred times, with Rob Stark no less. Lord Dustin insisted he would be part of the war effort for Robert's Rebellion. He was too proud, too excited, so Barbrae lost her last chance at love. The horse she gave him came back, but that was it, and Ned came with a feeble excuse and not even any bones, which we can understand must be pretty annoying. And there's also a good question on Ned bringing the Anna back and not the others. We can see why he did it logistically, and Barbie might have acted the same if fortunes were reversed, but again, we can also understand the pain involved. She must be especially vexed that her husband actually did survive the rebellion somehow, but then just perished in some jaunt into mysterious dawn for something Dustin technically had no business being involved in. It was something that Ned either asked or persuaded him to do, so it all, again, makes sense. And I also wonder if Ned ever realised Barbary's feelings for him, and if he did, why they'd come about. To be fair, looking back, it all kind of makes sense now. The evidence begins to mount up and it all clicks together. We hardly ever saw any Dustin men down on Rob's campaign, because Barbara is obviously keeping as few out of it as she could and she apparently must have never come to Winterfell because Theon didn't recognise her when he first saw her whereas he does most northern lords so that gives a pretty big hint on the relationship with Ned she had although there's probably some sexism built into that as well Theon likely takes a lot more notice of those northern lords because they're men Finally, I know I'm rushing a bit towards the end here but like I say we're running long Finally, Barbary describes her angle of revenge on top of helping the Boltons steal their home and country from them of course she is not going to let Ned Stark's bones come home She describes it in a flash of being a monster herself. This is how much her grievances have twisted her soul. She will stop Nerds Bones herself whenever they come out of the neck, repaying him for the injustice he paid her husband. Which is sad for us, we don't want that to happen. That would interfere with the major theme of the ultimate reunion between Home and Stark. He was the one who first decided to leave after all he was the first one to die so this place was his when we were first introduced to it and that's a major scene that we're still expecting to see and barbie's going to rob it from us no 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 we don't want that so we're all very much hoping that she fails in that respect at least we definitely want ned's bones back here, especially when we think his spirit is here already thanks to and Rickon and yeah, we need that to happen Although well, it does bring up the question of where are the bones because they were sent up from the riverlands quite a while ago so where have they gone have they already been lost as howland reed hoarding them in the in the neck until he knows it's safe that's really tough to say but it is kind of a wonderful end of the chapter that i know i'm not doing justice to here for really adding another layer into the north in general and the consequences of decisions especially for someone we kind of tend to treat as a saint sometimes in ned that's dead had knock-on effects we've seen how the present war is affecting everyone well that's just the same for the previous war so those need to be addressed and this is something that obviously is going to have to be healed at some point or well, maybe it doesn't depending on who wins and what happens here how this is going to come into play with the uh, stark bolton war i'm going to leave it there apologies for not giving barbary as much just attention as she deserves quite at the end but i think you've got enough to listen to for today so instead let's talk about next week shall we what is coming next time well as i already mentioned and the first chapter we're going to have next week is really incredibly linked because we're going back to Asher. we're going on to that march with stannis and asha is going to tell us all about just what Fionn thought here that the winter the storm must be really kicking their ass and yes you're completely right theon asha is going to tell us about that then we'll move on to daenerys seven where we're hearing wedding bells for the second time in this book and uh well they're happier than jane's were but they're not that much happier then we'll have john nine when Melisandre's visions of the the girl on the dying horse finally come home to roost we see if they are true or not as John has a lots of thoughts about Aya and where she is and to finish we have the girl herself we'll have Aya 1 the blind girl yes we're getting back to that we're going back to Braavos that's incredibly exciting to be reintroduced to that character again finally after so long so we're looking forward to that so you can probably hear my voice is on its way out i'm sure you've got plenty to do in this uh, festive period i'll let you get on with that and we will see you instead on the aisle next time see you then thanks everybody